You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads His Dark Materials, the book series, The Amber Spyglass, chapters 4 through 7. I am one of your hosts, Eliana. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe. <sighs> We're back with chapters 4 through 7. Those chapters are, of course, Ama and the Bats, The Adamant Tower, Preemptive Absolution, Mary Alone. And all of that will, of course, be ended with a discussion, which is a very, very, very special, dusty, spoilery section where we talk about the books of dust. But Eliana, do you want to tell the listeners at home what our spoiler policy is? Yeah, so... We've been doing our spoilers as though you, the listener, are reading along with us. And up until the discussion, our spoilers are all through the first two main books of Northern Light slash The Golden Compass, The Subtle Knife, and the first three chapters of The Amber Spyglass. We're doing our best. Yeah, the discussion covers everything else, including, as Chloe said, the books of dust as well as novellas and everything else that's going to happen in the rest of this book. And we're doing our best. Please give us preemptive absolution <laughs> if we fuck it all up, you know? Uh, Eliana's going to try we, to censor me, but... We're not... I'm so sorry. Thank you for supporting us. Yeah. Hey, and if this is your first listen through and you're listening with us, we're so excited you're you're reading these books. I'm so excited. Eliana really gave me a gift. She gives me a gift every week, honestly. Every week I get to record with her as a gift. It's a present, her presence. Anyways. What kind of but, gift? The gift of mercy. <laughs> the gift of I wish. Oh my god. Uh, the gift of mercy. Please give it to me. But beyond that gift that Eliana gives me that keeps giving every week. I do hope you give us preemptive absolution if we do fuck it up at all, but we'll try not to. We'll try to keep you spoiler-free till the end with that dusty, 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 dust discussion. Eliana, we're doing a very special Patreon episode this month. This is usually the month we would talk about something kind of His Dark Materials related for Patreon, Patreon members in the Stranger tier and above, but we have an episode on a very special book series. Actually, it's a series. Did you know this? Technically. I actually did. I didn't read the second. <sighs> I don't know if I read the second or the third one. So, before we go into a discussion of which books we have read from the series, I don't know that we'll do the whole series or not, but as Chloe said, many apologies if you were looking forward to this month's His Dark Materials Patreon episode, but we are going to visit actually a different book from my childhood that is also actually part of chloe's childhood we are going to read ella enchanted which is a wonderful i think it's a wonderful like classic i will call it a classic i think so it's gail carson levine it it is it's a classic fiction you know like youth fiction story with the romance and the the ogres and the magic and it's kind of a retelling of Cinderella, right? It features Ella, Ella Enchanted. So because mm-hmm. a person I know was born this month, we're going to celebrate someone that I know that was born in the month of August. And the episode is going to be called Eliana Enchanted. <laughs> <gasps> yeah. Um, hopefully I'm not enchanted in the way that things go in this book series. 
but it's it's I love this book. I think we've discussed it before. I I read this book over and over again until this copy <laughs> fell apart in my hands. Growing up, uh, uh, but at at the suggestion of I believe our friend Ashea from History of Westeros, I checked out Ferris, which is another one of the books in this series. But apparently, Ashea's favorite is the Two Princesses of Bamare. But there are, I think, a few other ones also within this little I universe. Think one more in this world. Yeah. Yeah. I know that the third one she put out was supposed to be a prequel to Ella Enchanted. Yeah. And I believe it was following the Ogres. I didn't read that one. I didn't read the Snow White one. I read Ella Enchanted carsick on road trips in the back of my parents' car. I remember like being so yeah. nauseated and being like, I'm watching the trees go by and I want to puke, but I also want to read Ella Enchanted and see what happens next with the Ogres. So... This brings back some memories. I'm hoping not to get that sweet, sweet vertigo while I read it again. We'll find out. I'll let you know. <laughs> but we yeah. might even watch the movie, too, over uh, maybe even on our Discord with our friends. Or I might rent it, you know, pull it up and have a movie night with everyone. We just don't know. We're going to look into it. But we do have an event planned for patrons in the Thunder tier and above over on Patreon this month, which is our Discord brunch slash happy hour. Yes. And that's going to be towards the end of this month you know it's just gonna be an event filled month in general this is going to be on august 28th a saturday this month yeah to be announced theme tba we're gonna talk about it probably more next week uh our schedule's a little off if you're listening to this you might have noticed this is coming out a week later than planned had a little bit of medical stuff to take care of but we are back in action and We'll just be a week off, so if you're looking for an A Song of Ice and Fire Catalan episode, come on back next week. Yes, but also, speaking of things next week and movie nights, Chloe and I will be joining our friend Thomas on Monday evening, August 9th. Yes, we will be joining him up for a podcast. So he is from Teacock Podcast Network, the new dad podcast, the movie club pick uh, podcast, the Movie Club podcast. And we're so excited. Last week, our friend Ashea, who we just talked about, she was on from History of Westeros talking about Fantastic Planet. We are going to be on Tuesday live, uh, August 9th, with Thomas talking about one of my favorites. And I- I'm excited to talk about it with Eliana, Dazed and Confused. Yeah, I'm excited. I haven't watched this movie in years. <sighs> so. I'm excited to revisit it and also to do so with you and our friend Thomas. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> I'm excited. I love I love Matthew McConaughey in that fucking movie. And uh, <laughs> it's a classic ass. It's just like a classic movie. It is I a really classic. I really relate to Mila Jovovich. Sure. If you show up on Tuesday to the live stream on August 9th, I'm sure you will, you'll hear me talk about my love for Mila Jovovich's character, strumming the guitar, hitting a joint in the corner. That's that's high school, bro. That's high school, man. The girl with the guitar. These books, though. Let's come back. Let's come back to his dark materials. The Amber Spyglass. Let's get back to it. Let's talk about Ama and the Bats. Right off ah. the Bats, if I may oh. say. If hey. I may say. Amazing. Hey. You right may off say. The bats. You may say. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. I'm happy. Um, I'm happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Eliana missed me, too. I'm just happy to be alive. (laughs) Oh, my God. The poem at the start of this chapter is actually one of my favorite poets, Emily Dickinson. 
And I'm very excited about the poetry. We keep threatening to do a poetry of his Dark Materials episode. We we might have to, you know, that would also mean we'll have to probably read, like, read Paradise Lost further. It's just so yeah. much. Anyways, but this poem is not that much. Emily Dickinson is my favorite poet. I don't really? get to talk about her a lot, but my, yeah, I, I my mom gave me a bunch of Emily Dickinson books when I was a kid, and I loved them. I kept them in my bookshelf. I still have them love them to pieces and uh she actually it was her books she took notes and had them in between and like it was oh, her books so yeah that's cool it was actually really cool i have a lot of notes on it yeah it's special and between 1860 to 1862 emily wrote about at least 1800 poems like probably more this one specifically was one of them she lay as if at play the snippet that philip has highlighted here is She lay as if at play, her life had leaped away, intending to return, but not so soon. Uh, This one was not published until 1935, however, it was likely Hmm. written 1860 to 1862. Most of her poems were taken from letters, uh, or from just scraps she had in notebooks, or etc. in ledgers, but all of them were put together in packets at her archives, which if you haven't visited them, you can go online and visit the archives of all of her work and see all of these these scraps. Uh, it's really actually intensely amazing. I was just looking through each part of the website and it was just very well hmm. organized. They're all put together in packets. This is in packet 13. And it's tying into Lyra, right, so well with her being at sleep, the enchanted sleeper. And Pullman chose to open this chapter with that quote, but the last verse of the poem I feel like ties in also well here. Her morning at the door, devising, I am sure, to force her to sleep, so light, so deep. Uh, Not only does this play on the force of sleep that, of course, Coulter has put her under, but there's also kind of a double entendre in this poem in the beginning of her morning at the door. Not just mourning, but also mourning, grieving, which Coulter kind of is, right? Like, she's living out her sick, twisted fantasy of not being able to keep Lyra, not being able to have Lyra or have a life with her, which we've seen her attempt to do, right, over the the last couple books. Her inability to make a move while the Magisterium is on the way coming for her daughter, right? It's this kind of this static, like, frightening feeling. She's frightened and she's immobile and she's in gridlock. She She can't make a choice. She's mourning that past and uh, possibly going to be mourning the future, right? Like when Lyra wakes the fuck up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's really interesting. And I love I love that double entendre that you've read into this because it does feel very much like what's going on here in this chapter. And as you said, her entire arc so far, and she's really one of the most dynamic characters in the whole in the whole story. And yeah, Emily Dickinson's so funny. Like, didn't she have what? She would take little scraps of her poems and just tuck them in random places in her home and yeah, little Easter eggs of things to find everywhere. And yeah, she took all the pieces of her soul and split them up into little words and hid them all across the landscape. But not in an <sighs> evil way. Not in no, any, like, not in a Horcrux way. way. <laughs> <laughs> not Damn, not like that. No, in a beautiful queer way. Okay, God. <laughs> Jesus. Well, back to Amma and the bats. Amma cannot stop thinking of the sleeping girl. She didn't doubt Mrs. Coulter's story at all. She was like, yeah, sorcerers exist, and that woman loves her daughter ferociously. And so Amma, like, just 
began to love her too she's running errands for her she's listening to like this woman's many stories she's just like really deep in it and she hopes to see lyra and except that she probably won't see the sleeper again but she like has this fantasy of like lyra's gonna wake up and we're gonna be friends and in many ways like sweet what Sad. this you were talking about mrs culture trying to live that life with lyra again and part of this is part of that right remember like in the earlier book she had this great plan she's like all right lyra and i are gonna run schemes together to lure even more (laughs) children into damnation and i'm like uh uh (laughs) okay interesting and i mean this is kind of doing that but with lyra very much not consenting to be part of the scheme slash unconscious (laughs) but ama is again she's just like one of the many children right who falls under mrs coulter's spell once more and i'm just like damn a lot of people give this woman so much trust just because she's hot. Yeah, I understand that. You know, it's really hard being. I'm sorry, being this hot, being, <laughs> being this, hot. this hot, being this sexually erotic, arousing. Oh my god! Uh, you know, I just tend to rile. At- I get it. I understand, Maurice. No, I'm totally kidding. She crazy, and I love her though. I do love this woman to pieces, but she crazy. And that's coming out right now, right? A little, a lot happening for Marisa, kind of suffering from a little bit of a mental break going on here. And she's like keeping her like a doll. It's just back to hearkening to the Northern Lights, Golden Compass, putting her in that dress, right? And dressing her up to be like just her little toy. And even the way that she's protectively combing her hair and washing her and keeping her safe. Obviously, we know there's a greater evil coming after reading these handfuls of chapters here but what <laughs> what <laughs> coming for lyra yeah it's a it's like between a rock and a hard place and i also will say as we get into the next chapter in the adamant tower and talk about the contrast of asriel's plans for lyra versus coulter's plans i don't know coulter may be crazy but at least she went there at least she went to find her daughter just saying yeah herself she's a really bad mom in a lot of ways but in some ways i'm like Hmm. I guess I admire this. <laughs> yeah, uh, but um, that's what makes her such a fascinating character. I I think so. You know, it's so fascinating. She doesn't have to be moral to be a good character. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely. important. She's not real. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. I don't know. People need that clarified nowadays. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I just hate that we have to preface work like that. You know, like let me yeah. just preface this. You know, these are fictional. Ama thinks incessantly about the spell that's been cast on the sleeper, on Lyra, why it happened, all while she does her chores and day work. She gets so curious that she walks three hours to Cho Lungse, where a monastery is taking flatbread sweetened with honey. She bribes the porter and gets an audience with Pagzin Tulku, a great healer with a bat demon who had cured an outbreak of white fever the year before. So, Tulku is actually a term for a spiritual leader in Tibetan. Buddhism. And the Dalai Lamas uh, are among this, right? There are other, like, less high-profile ones, of course. We we can't all be rock stars. And the Tokos are, you know, they're the spiritual leaders who consciously return to be reborn as humans to, to help guide people. And I think it's interesting to just consider that, you know, that there, there are Tokos here um, within the context of his dark materials. Oh, yeah, that spiritual rebirth, that's really interesting. Okay, okay. That and like also that they return, right? That their soul, mm-hmm. the reincarnation, returning back onto this plane. 
So it's interesting because that is like how I feel about how the alethiometer is described. Like when you read it, the state that you're supposed to be into is kind of like letting, and, oh. and we'll get into this with Balthamos Baruch, mm. their angel form being made of dust, but it's like meditation or the alethiometer. You're supposed to like let your subconscious drift from you, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like separate, sever yourself. And it does yeah. seem like that's how the alethiometer works of concentrating deeply and letting yourself deeply fall into that chasm, that pit, if you will. Hmm. Something kind of, yeah, meditation-y. Yeah. 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 It's hard to explain. I haven't done mm-hmm. it in a bit. I need to get back to that. That might improve, like, my blood pressure, my emotions, my mood. Ah. But yeah, just, like, enlightenment and also, you know, seeking knowledge still, right? Um, mm-hmm. As opposed to some of the other religions that we see in the next few chapters. The Tolko's bat demon swoops down to speak to Ama's demon, Kulong, and Ama remains still until she is asked to speak by Pagzin Tolko. She begs him to teach her wisdom and so that she can learn the spells and enchantments that he knows, but he rejects her. She figured this would happen and asks humbly, alright, then just teach me one remedy. So so she knows how to haggle, alright? <laughs> and he says... He can give it to her uh, instead because she can't know his secrets. And then she lies and says, oh, cool, great. It's uh, to cure sleeping sickness for the son of my father's cousin. And she's like, mm, good job, me. Very clever for changing the sex of the sleeper. Uh, she guesses <laughs> that the son, she decides that the son is like a few years older than she is and can't wake up. So big Lyra move here from Ama with all these lying. And... She lies even more and says that, oh, yeah, I was sent by those parents. They're very poor. and They live on the other side of the village. And the killer's like, hmm, all right, I want to see the child and inquire into the planets that were in position when he fell asleep. And she explains, but you don't have time for that. The man and the bat move from shelf to shelf, tapping out powders and herbs in the order that his demon visits them. Um, I do have to say it's so sad because they would be best friends, right? Like Ama and Lyra would hit it Probably. off. Probably. Ama would be like yeah. another Roger. They both have very similar kind of mannerisms. They like a little bit of mischief, but they also, you I know, they, they like to be proper. And so it, it's just like it would be a great personality match for Lyra. It's so sad. I want them to be friends. Lyra, wake up. Uh, they are in the same world. They are. Soon. They might meet. You never know. You never know. Soon. It could happen. In the book, even. <laughs> they could happen. I love this next part. It says that Tolku uh, grinds the herbs, same, been there, mutters a spell, and tells her to brush the powder into the child's nostril until he wakes, with great caution, because too much, the kid will choke. She thanks him, and she's like, I'm sorry, I only have one loaf of honey bread for you, and he's grateful, all the same. He tells her, next time, tell me the whole truth, not part of it, though. And she's like, oh shit. Right, like, total adult catching you shit. Fuck. Um... (laughs) Amma bows out. She's ashamed and she's like, oh, I hope I didn't give too much away because she knows that he knows there's a woman, a witch, you know, in town. He knows. So she hurries to the valley. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone knows. They're all going to know. They're all like, she's weird. Why is she here? (laughs) Also, like, you keep going off in the woods to see her. Like, everyone can see you, Amma. It's not a big town. (laughs) Yeah. it's, It's a pretty small town. 
small village. So Amma bows out. She's ashamed. She's like, oh, I hope I didn't give too much away. She hurries to the valley with sweet rice shaped in a heart fruit leaf. It sounds delicious. She's bursting to tell Coulter what she had done. She's like, I want her praise and her thanks, which is exactly what Coulter, like, instills in people, right? They crave yeah. her praise and her thanks. True. Uh, and she also is like, maybe I'll get to talk to the enchanted sleeper. They could be friends. But she arrives there and the place is empty. She looks around, monkey, woman, they're gone. And she's like, what if they're gone forever? But she realizes all the equipment is still there. And she's like, what about the enchanted sleeper? What if she woke up while the woman was gone? And she hears a noise outside and then she hides. She like darts behind a ledge in the room, same room as Lyra is in, uh, as she watches the golden monkey and woman arrive and the monkey is sniffing from afar. Hmm. Marisa and her demons see the food that has been left by the girl, and Marisa comments that hmm, that girl shouldn't be coming inside the cave. She stoops to start a fire and heat some water, oh and God. Amma painfully watches from far away. She's like stuck. She's like, fuck. As Mrs. Coulter mixes a draft for the enchanted sleeper, but she realizes, oh my God, amazing, the spell's broken, the sleeper is awakened. <laughs> and then suddenly, Mrs. Coulter is murmuring to her, telling her she's fine, crooning in a sing-song voice to her as she sponges her face down. And the girl, who, as we know, is Lyra, begins to wake and starts lashing out and spilling the drink that Mrs. Coulter is feeding her until the monkey just grips Pentalemon, holding him down with his little black fingers as uh, Pan begins to change between like a cat, snake, rat, fox, bird, wolf, cheetah, lizard, polecat. Honestly, this grip must be so strong. Those were a lot of animals uh, until finally Pan settles on a porcupine, which makes the monkey screech as it's impaled by three of Pan's quills. Then Mrs. Coulter slaps Lyra across the face and before Lyra can do anything Mrs. Coulter is just like force feeding her the potion again and Lyra chokes down she's coughing she's sobbing she's retching until you know finally she falls back into <gasps> an enchanted sleep a poison sleep drugged deceitful sleep and you know this is not the good sleep that we have brought you before listeners this is an unnatural sleep. <laughs> it is, though. It is totally an unnatural sleep. We like when Lyra has organic, healthy naps. Yes, we love a rested, cared-for right. queen. And right now, she's not. She's not at all. Well, she's semi-cared for, but like with a sponge. She hasn't had a proper bath in a while. She probably really is smelly. She's been smelly for a while. Oh, my gosh. Since, like, Cheetah Godse. But to lapse as we do a little uh, in the spoilers, the, the television show does show that that's fine for Lyra, you know? Yeah. Good for her mm -hmm. being stinky. Yeah. I mean, I imagine you'd be, I mean, I work it up after a couple couple hours, you know, of like living. It's just life. She's I mean, out she's there in real life. She's probably gotten used to that smell. Yeah, her mom's probably gotten used to that smell, you know, it, it, it kind of fades a little It's the smell of love. The smell of love. Oh my god, well. Smell of the outside. Speaking of the smell of love, there's a couple really obvious, uh, like, fairy tale kind of references and uh, things going on here, right? The Enchanted Sleeper, very Snow White, very Sleeping Beauty, you got your run-of-the-mill princesses, but 
And especially with the Ama interactions, there's something really interesting with the perspective Pullman is giving her here, right? Like, she is in the position of all of these enchanted, uh, like, the princes have been before with these enchanted princess princesses of viewing them and being like, oh, what do I do to awaken the sleeper? The original Sleeping Beauty, or what really began the Sleeping Beauty mythos and story, is called The Sun, the Moon, and Talia. It's written by an Italian poet, Giambattista Basile. In his 1634 work, The Pentamerone, from uh, the Greek Five and Day. So this is actually a really interesting story. It's which 50 stories are related over the course of five days. It's crazy. There's so much in it. And it's all in analogy with like the 10-day structure of the earlier. This story is in analogy with the 10-day structure of the earlier Decameron by Giovanni Boccaccio. And I I just think it's such an interesting, like, delivery of a bunch of poems basically to tell stories over that structure of days this particular story uh with the the og briar rose talia is very lyra in that basic eve kind of storytelling but in this poem it's slightly different so talia is the main character of the poem and she is subdued by flax that gets stuck beneath her nail there was once a great lord who was blessed with the birth of a daughter whom he named talia He sent for the wise men and astrologers in his lands to predict her future. They met, counseled, and cast her horoscope, and at length they came to the conclusion she would incur great danger from a splinter of flax. Her father therefore forbade flax, hemp, or other material be brought in the house so she should escape the predestined danger. As we go into the next chapter of the Magisterium, we'll talk a little bit more about that ink being dry, right? But it definitely brings up a lot of Lyra's prophecy. Talia's father abandons her in one of his rich manses. He can't bear the grief this brings upon him, you know, to see her all the time. And a king passes by in the wood, and the king rapes Talia while she's asleep. She magically bears two golden children. In birthing these children out of her, it wakes her up from the enchanted sleep. Would you imagine that? And what a the horrible two golden... way to wake up. I know. Congrats. There's twins. Uh, the two twins that she has, she has no clue how it happened. She's like, huh, don't know. But it wakes her. The queen, the king's wife, hears about this, and she wants to get the children, and she summons for them. And Talia is like, oh, that's such a compliment, being summoned by the queen, because uh, she still doesn't know about, you know, their heritage. And she gets called out, like, in front of the whole court. No slut-shaming. This is not cool of the queen. Uh, she's like a hussy, and that's not what we do here. We don't, like, make golden twins while we're asleep and all this shit. And uh, the queen orders the kids cooked up, and the king is like, oh, I kind of love these kids, though. I don't want to get, I don't want them to be cooked up. In fact, do you know what I don't love? My queen. She's awful. She's, like, terrible. So he trades the kids out for lambs, and long story short, the children, who are the sun and moon, overcome. So does Talia. The queen goes bye-bye. Talia's now the queen. She becomes the queen. It all happens real fast, and it all works out. But uh, the big, the big moral at the end of the poem is, Those whom fortune favors find good luck even in their sleep. Here, of course, uh, there's something about the innocence of Ama being the king in this situation, or the princes that stumble upon the fair maidens asleep in the woods. Ama and Kulang are looking to save her, and they're looking to do something heroic and help her. Uh, And, you know, she's a sleeping princess who happens to be a figurehead of a rebellion, right, in a cave. It's kind of magical. And they take a journey to go find a healer to help her. And uh, they are the ones that wake her, still by kind of slight lies and trickery, which is very thematic for Lyra, but good lies and trickery, not for, you know, the stories telling of a king 
raping a princess to have magical children or whatever. I don't know. He just thought she was pretty. I guess it was a compliment back then. Who knew? But uh, in storytelling in the whatever hundreds, 1600s. I'm like, king. Talia like decided she was going to marry her. Okay. Yeah, that's that's what they thought in the 1600s. Like, so I think, I don't know, I guess feminist theory has gotten better run, or girl. whatever. But run. She couldn't. She was asleep. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, but, but after, right? Afterwards, she right. decides, yeah, this is a wonderful Before, reward no, for me. No, she loved him. She loved him. Uh, it's weird. But I do think that there's something in this of Lyra being held by her mother right against her will without having free will, which is kind of the big one. Free Lyra, too, while we're at it. But free will in the story. Yeah. I think that's kind of interesting. And I also think that uh, at the same time, these four chapters that we're going through show people searching for Lyra, right? Some are bad that we see searching for her, but some are good that are searching for her or good aligned or good tangentially aligned is what I'm trying to imply. And some of it's all right, right? Like that's good. Like people are out there hoping good fortune does favor her in that way that like she is the figurehead and the people are thinking of her. You were you were talking earlier about like how that prophecy plays into this and then the parallels, right? But there's being a prophecy in the story of Sleeping Beauty and that, you know, her father forbade any flax hemp or any other material. None of that weed be brought into this house so that she no could escape No weed in this danger. kingdom. <laughs> no CBD in this kingdom. <laughs> and... <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I think I'm real funny. <laughs> anyway, the king. So the king is like doing all this like these crazy outlandish measures of like overprotecting his daughter to prevent that mm-hmm. destiny coming true for her, which is very much what uh, Mrs. Coulter is doing here right now that she knows yes. more about her daughter's prophecy. She's like, well, if I just if I just keep her here and keep her asleep, then she she has no chance of falling. This never happened for her. And it's interesting because, I mean, <sighs> Mrs. Coulter is so toxic as like a parent, but <laughs> in a way there's like a twisted logic to it. And I, th- I don't know if we've talked about it in this series or in the A Song of Ice and Fire series, which we probably have, but bringing up that idea of Jungian archetypes, especially, again, of the mother, mm-hmm. and how the mother is often seen as a very supportive figure, a very protective figure, right? Um, someone who nurtures, but then the shadow of that uh, Jungian archetype is that the mother can be a very suffocating force, um, stifling as in that desire to overprotect and nurture and makes it so that one can never actually gets to grow and experience life, and that's what Mrs. Coulter is doing here as she attempts to... She's like, this is this is motherly, right? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Um, trying to mother, you know, Eve, mother of us all. Yeah, how do you mother the mother? Truly, I do not know. I Lyra's going to wake up and she's going to be like, you just got mothered. Then <laughs> <laughs> she Jeez. pours soup down Bro. her throat and does it again. Yeah, probably. Uh. <laughs> Take that. Eat that, <laughs> mom. <laughs> Uh, well, Pan transforms into a long, snowy-furred creature alongside Lyra's neck as the woman sings to her humming songs and even just kind of talking gibberish because, again, Mrs. Coulter, very new to this mother thing, she's just like, <laughs> I actually don't know any lullabies. She's like, panic singing. And eventually, Mrs. Coulter cuts a little bit of Lyra's hair, trims a long, dark curl off, and puts it in a log in a locket and Amma's like 
what the fuck is going on inside <laughs> she's gonna work more magic on it she, she was like what did i just fucking watch this was this was like rated r and the golden monkey says something to mrs coulter who reaches up to the ceiling pulling down a bat that she hands to the monkey who snaps it apart like a toy uh, cracking and snapping it uh, limb by limb while marisa lays on her sleeping bag eating a bar of chocolate no literally she's like mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I do on my period. What the fuck? No, she's well, not icon. the part where my soul she's snaps things apart. Just the chocolate. All she needs is a glass of wine, and I'm like, okay, I guess that part's relatable. The other part is not. <sighs> and the the description of the scene is actually, I would say, even more gruesome in the context of the healer who is helping Lyra, Pagden Tolko, because it's called Ama and the Bats. Plural, because mm-hmm. Tolko's demon is a bat demon. Thankfully, thankfully, what the golden monkey is tearing apart isn't a bat demon, uh, because we're told that it's very clear the difference between them. But it does remind us once again of kind of Mrs. Coulter's relationship with religion, and it's just kind of a a weird like image to put together in your head. Not just the the sadism of it, because I think this finally really drives home like. Oh, this woman just like relaxes off of other people's pain. <laughs> oh, she's like the cold, unnatural mother I never had. Yeah, she's like it's a fascinating characterization. So you bring up some of the symbolism with the bat, right? And and I love that. I caught that too of like the bat at the beginning, different bat, and now this bat, and this bat symbolizing him and symbolizing what he stood for, right? And and how he's a helpful healer and that he or she is just tearing that apart, tearing that construction apart. And and as far as uh-huh. bat symbolism goes too, like the the mostly common look at bats, depending on where you are culturally, is that they're trickery, they resemble trickery or death, and they're also used in some religions as symbols of the underworld and in some mythology and Greek mythos, uh with like Hades and Persephone and people living in the shadows of darkness. And many mythological stories include bats and humans being intertwined. Hmm. And sometimes bats even acting as messengers to the world of the dead. So interesting. I thought that was interesting. And I think it's interesting how she's besides her tearing one apart, but how she's like brewing potions, right. And, and create oh, yeah. and that this potion would use that feels interesting to me too it's kind of witch-like just putting that Mm -hmm. out there that Coulter's brewing potions tearing apart you know having the 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 torn apart bat for it and if the bat's used in the potion application at all it makes me think what is she brewing a potion that actually helps lyra communicate with the underworld with her dead bff with that bat symbolism and it represents you know destroying magic and breaking it down to use it yeah, that would be interesting if she were. I think, so, just my personal opinion, I kind of prefer that she's not, because then I'm just like, she just wants, she just wants to hurt for the hell of it. Mm-hmm. That's fine, too. But, but I was just interested. I, I don't was know if like, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's commonly, right? It's commonly, like, cited sometimes, like, a wing of a bat. Yeah, exactly. Like, like a witch potion. Like, to me, that's what, it seems almost like she was like, all right, do your thing, crack it open, eat your blood marrow out of it, and we'll throw it in the pile for use later for next week. Eventually, they fall asleep, and Ama makes her great escape. Her demon turns into an owl on the clean, cold air, 
She stops in front of the huddle of stone houses with her demon on her fist, and she's crying that the woman had lied to her, asking Kulang, what? what should we do? How could she have done this thing? Kulang says they cannot Easily. tell anyone, but they can go wake the enchanted sleeper when the woman next leaves. Wake her and spirit her away from here. The thought filled them both with fear, but it had been said, and the little paper package was safe in Amma's pocket, and they knew how to use it. Brave little Amma! I love Amma. I want more Amma. Forever. Aw, yeah. Amma need to see more of her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like a chapter. Another chapter or so. Or yeah, turn Lyra. Pretty fence. Uh, well, we get another one of these great little underworld inter- interludes. Wake up! I can't see her. I think she's close by. She's hurt me. Oh, Lyra, don't be frightened. If you're frightened too, I'll go mad. They tried to hold each other tight, but their arms passed through the empty air. Lyra tried to say what she meant, whispering close to his little pale face in the darkness. I'm just trying to wake up. I'm so afraid of sleeping all my life and then dying. I want to wake up first. I wouldn't care if it was just for an hour. As long as I was properly alive and awake. I don't know if this is real or not even, but I will help you, Roger. I swear I will. But if you're dreaming, Lyra, you might not believe it when you wake up. That's what I'd do. I'd just think it was only a dream. No! She said fiercely, and it cuts off have to commend Eliana. You hit the emotional beat there. I know sometimes we have to redo them, but that one was like, you are fierce. You were very fierce. You fiercely Thank said you. it. I believed it. I thought you were Lyra for a second. I really thought. Oh, thank you. I, I too thought I was really, you know, a 12-year-old sleep. The voice of an angel. The voice of an angel. I do love to sleep. I do too. That, yeah, was, that no, line made me go, oh, okay. Thanks, Philip Pullman, for staring right at me. <sighs> I'm afraid of sleeping all my life and then dying. Me. <laughs> It's exactly what's going on. Yeah, it's it's so welcome. It's so poignant to you know the way that life, this story, yeah, life and like this story and what it's going towards. But um, yeah, maybe Lyra sleeping through the first two books was actually foreshadowing. Wait, were we supposed to be analyzing that within the context of like this line? This is the great sleep for her. I also like thought it was like Philip Pullman's mechanism for like showing the passage of time to some extent and mm-hmm. like how much how tiring all this shit is because life is also tiring but now i'm like should we have been taking a closer look at that like as you said like is it part of this of waking no. up not sleeping all your life no 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 i think why we just went through some very tiresome trials in the first two books this and one's she's just she's being girl. drugged yeah yeah this is just no. getting drugged it's kind of the fucked up one. Well, yeah. let's go to the tower. The adamant tower. I am adamant about this tower, Eliana. I'm Adam Ant versus Adam Termite. Oh my god. Okay. We open it up with Milton, right? We open it up with some Milton. With ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of God raised impious war in heaven and battle proud. I love the opening of this entire chapter just in general it's just like this beautiful look at like a hellscape right it's metal it's the most metal view we get we get this awesome big place the first passage reminds me so much of like revelations and of ezekiel Uh and different things in the bible 
A lake of molten sulfur extended the length of an immense canyon, releasing its mephitic vapors in sudden gusts and belches and barring the way of the solitary winged figure who stood at its edge. If he took to the sky, the enemy scouts who had spotted him and lost him would find him again at once. But if he stayed on the ground, it would take so long to get past this noxious pit that his message might arrive too late. He would have to take the greater risk. What an Ugh. epic metal, like, Ugh. you know, like, I just, I feel, I feel like I'm there. I'm about to, like, feel the wind through yeah. my dusty cells of my body like an angel. Uh, you are an angel. Oh, shots. <laughs> You're such a liar. <laughs> you're, you're a demon? Hmm. hmm. I love just the biblical metal opening here. And with Asriel, of course, as like our, our Lucifer character, Asriel's palace, the description is completely on that biblical plane. The way it's constructed as we go up and get the descriptions of it, it is in levels, right? It's very much like levels of purgatory and hell. And I was reading a little bit of the prophecy against Gog and uh, Gog and Magog and the story from Ezekiel of uh, God just coming down and being like, listen, Gog, you're being a shit ass. Which isn't what he said, but it's basically what he said. He's like, he can't be destroying shit. He was like, stop destroying shit. But God, when he's pissed in this story, in one of these fictional pieces, the Bible, uh, he said, And I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. And every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour out torrents of rain hailstones, fire, sulfur on him, and on his troops, and on the many nations with him. I will magnify and sanctify myself, and will reveal myself in the sight of many nations. Then they will know I am the Lord. It just reminds you of, like, this, all the totally, like, metal shit happening in Ezekiel. And I was trying to yeah. understand, like, I was looking for more molten lava in the Bible, just chilling the other day. I was Googling on Bible search, you know, dot com or whatever. Just hanging out, getting those Christian pop-ups. And uh, I recalled they don't talk about molten lava because they usually call it brimstone. And that is what this chapter is full of. We're going to talk about adamant in a while, but brimstone is always used to describe like fire and sulfur and God's wrath and judgment and damnation. And uh, it actually is from Middle English. It, the etymology is huh. brimstone. Uh, or Bremston, forms of Brinston, Brenston, and it's two words together meaning Brian Stone or Burn Stone. Literally translates burn to stone. Burn Stone. I'm into it. That's also metal in and of itself, yeah. too. And that's Azriel's house, that's right? Cool. It is built of brimstone here. It is just lava and hell gates and shit. Yeah, dude, absolutely. Uh, a lot of like it. It is going to be called like his basalt fortress later on, and I mean that that whole like imagery, right? You were talking about the brimstone, and then even like how it's what there's all that sulfuric stuff going on, mm -hmm. which must smell bad. I've heard that you know volcanoes smell bad. It like that's what makes rotten eggs smell bad. Probably smells like farts everywhere. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. That's it smells like joke. sewage. That's, yeah, I live in a city. Serious. It smells like sewage. Yeah, I walked by it on the way to Target the other day. Not awesome, but you know, mm -hmm. I guess that's that's the war for you, and it feels <laughs> very reminiscent of uh, the description of what will be Pandemonium or the capital of Hell 
right, for Satan in uh, Paradise Lost, that that poem that, uh, you know, Philip Pullman's like a big fan of, you know, he's in the Paradise Lost fandom. He's a big name fan. (laughs) Oh my god, he's a John Milton stan. Oh my god. (laughs) Philip Pullman pulls up in the munchies and he's like, at John Milton. (laughs) What do you think about cats at John Milton? What do you think about cats in the musical? Oh my god. <laughs> He's not gonna answer. He's dead. Spoiler. <laughs> oh. God, well, that sucks. So it, it's up that a line from early in the poem, you know, opens this chapter that you read a lot earlier and uh, especially that description again of those flames and just it it, it feels very much like being far from heaven, though, you know, apparently it's like it sounds like in the poem in Paradise Lost, you make it sound like the fires have like no light somehow in hell, and I'm like, interesting, interesting. Also very metal. Oh, metal, but also metaf- metaphorical. Meta- uh, metaphorical. I tried. Metal- it's not great. I'll do better. No, I think that one's good. I like it. I like it. It's a little slip of the tongue. A little slip of the tongue. Mm-hmm. Well, Baruch is flying against his enemy angels, right? He's trying to outfly four pairs of wings beating after him. He finds clear air but his pursuers do too, streaming trails of vapor, dizzy from the fumes. Another hunter finds him, and all three of them twist in the air like scraps of flame, falling in a struggle to the rocks on the far side. The other pursuers don't come out of the clouds after them. They stay behind and watch. It's honestly amazing, um, and you were talking about this earlier, but I want to re-emphasize, like, I just love the language that opens, opens this. It's like how even Baruch isn't named at first, right? It really adds to, like, the drama of that opening scene and highlighting the war and the carnage here as those two flyers don't emerge and just, like, how fucking sick mm-hmm. Baruch is, right? To, I mean, it's dangerous. And also, it shows the stakes here, right, of, like, why Baruch decides that that big risk needs to be taken really shows you how, like, much they believe in this cause, just as Azrael does. And then also, again, like, those stakes are highlighted as Baruch passes at the end of this chapter. Yeah, maybe more. Maybe more than Azrael does. I mean, you never know. Yeah, probably. <laughs> A fortress emerges at the end of the valley, and it's built of basalt, like Eliana mentioned. Like a volcano had thrusted up millions of years ago. It's a dragonstone. No, I'm just kidding. Oh. Vast caverns full of provisions lie beneath the fortress. Engines of war being calibrated and tested. Below that, mills hold mighty forges where phosphor and titanium are being combined in alloys never known before. And the other side, the most exposed side, is a gate that's guarded by sentry where the walls rise out of lava flows. I love the language in this chapter when we get to the Mary Malone chapter later, Later, you know, Mary alone, as we'll talk about. Um, there's a lot of really beautiful description that describes the natural landscape like this, uh, just like that the art and the colors of it all blend together, but it's not violent, not like this. And this is very metal, very violent, literally metal, right? Because we're talking about metallic alloys. I love this. Mills hold mighty forges where phosphor and titanium are being combined in alloys never known before. So he's forging battle weapons, it seems, but the alloys are standing out completely to me here because in Northern Lights and Golden Compass, we talked about this a bit, the blade in Bulvanger is made of two distinct new metal alloys, right? The blade Azrael kills Roger with is also made of those two distinct metal alloys. Then we get to the subtle knife, which we hear is made of two distinct alloys twisted together. Uh, And... So this must be 
a world-splitting, atom-splitting, life-splitting, soul-splitting weaponry that he's making. He is having them forge soul-splitting weaponry. Like, yes. He, it makes sense, right? If you have this fight going on between angels, we know that they're not quite as strong as other angels. There are some angels that are far, far stronger that are in the inner circle and have that protection and strength. Uh, but angels, you know, we, we also know there's not just angels. There's other witches. There's other machines of war. Um, and we don't really know the true power power of the authority. That's something that Asriel seems to be weighing out. So these weapons could definitely kill anyone fighting them. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense why they're doing this and that stole spirit splitting weaponry. But I will say, like, does Azrael need to go through all this effort, right? Like, is it a little OP considering that what we found out is that angels are like little weaklings compared to us, <laughs> the Chad humans? Yeah. Right. And he doesn't even use this to, like, I don't know. It's interesting. Like, I, this is we, this is a big extent that I'm exploring the weaponry, right? Like, it's not brought up much more often because this story is is focused on differently. We focus a lot more on the characters, honestly. Um, I think about it, and I'm interested to see how they'll adapt this book right to screen when we get to series three. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I'm hoping it's not like some Avengers Endgame event, you know? where it's just like, war, 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 and there's people everywhere. I don't know. I'm curious to see what they actually bring to the front of it during uh, game time. Interesting. Good point. I hope it stays character-based, is my hope. In some aspects. I'm sure they will have to do some big things, but... It might be. Portals. Yeah. How they're keeping it tight. (sighs) The watch is being changed above, and the sentry must keep warm in the middle of the night. They're slapping their hands on their arms for warmth. Ten minutes later, the guard is going to get his mug of chocolatel and smoke leaf. That sounds fun. But better of all, his bed. But that doesn't actually happen for him. Fun times don't happen because the last thing he expected was to hear a hammer at the door. But he does. And so he snaps the spy hole open. And in its glare, three hooded figures carry a fourth figure with an indistinct shape who seems wounded, and the figure in front throws his hood down, announcing that they found Baruch, a rando angel, new to them, but not to us, because again, we are the wise Chad humans. Um, they found him at the Sulphur Lake, and he has a message for Azrael, so the sentry lets them through, and he realizes as they enter that the wounded figure is an angel, an angel of low rank, but an angel nonetheless. So he instructs them to lay him in the guardroom, and he calls his boss to report what's happening. Wow, the staffing structure is interesting here. Like, not really trying to be a jackass, but it it does bring up the comparison to the Magisterium a little bit. Mm, yeah. Uh, in that Azrael's working towards the greater good, but this is a militarized situation now. Like, he has commanders, he has staff that report to each other, and managers and all this. Uh, he's not doing things that differently, right? His goal is war against the authority. And so he's not playing like against them he's doing the same things in some aspects i kind of see it as like it's more pointed that like the magisterium is doing it the same as him because we've known from the start that Azrael's goal right like Mm -hmm. war well like it makes sense for this to be what he's building up so it's more strange that like why is the magisterium in the church staffed and structured like a like a militaristic uh operation but also where did azrael get all these people from so fast yeah well i mean support against oppression 
I think the it's hard when it's like a well, and this makes a case. We have something similar in our other series we read, right? Like in A Song of Ice and Fire, there's the case of like a flawed, when you have a flawed regime happening of like, you want to support their cause because there is totally oppression yeah. going on and there are horrible people in power. But is it a good cause? Is the person that's leading that cause really morally doing the right thing? Are they going to morally do the right thing when under pressure? Uh, these are all things to weigh and. It is interesting how Azriel's presented here and how his structure is, and the Magisterium, as you said. Like, no, they should not be militarizing, but they already are. So I, I, I was just knocking that one off, you know? I mean. Yeah, yeah. Can't do nothing about that. They have been. They're ready. They're like resources. We can They've buy them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about where we are. We have this quote, this line. On the highest rampart of the fortress was a tower of adamant. Just one flight of steps up to a set of rooms whose windows looked out north, south, east, and west. The largest room was furnished with a table and chairs and a map chest. Another with a camp bed. A small bathroom completed the set. Lord Azrael sat in the adamant tower, facing his spy captain across a mass of scattered papers. Sick loft, bro. <laughs> MTV Cribs, uh, Azrael style. <laughs> Smells like farts. Uh, smells like farts. Oh my god, you could never bring a woman home here. You better watch out. Don't go calling your ex. Ruta Scotty doesn't mind. Oh my god, Ruta Scotty loves farts. <laughs> That's her kink. Oh, stop! No kink shaming on this podcast. We are not allowed to kink shame. It's not fair. Uh, the Tower of Adamant. What a mythological centerpiece of lore, right? It, it's... Uh, in the Bible, Greek mythos, paradise lost, it's, it's everywhere. It's a form of archaic diamond. Over time, its meaning has changed depending on what lore and etymology you're following. It actually, interestingly enough to our episode today, has been confused with magnetic lodestones in the Middle Ages and lost kind of its meaning throughout that. Because of that, you might hear people use it to refer to being attached to something, right? Like, I adamantly agree with Eliana pretty often, in my opinion, or uh, I'm very adamant that Eliana is being very stupid, right? Uh, I'm just kidding, Eliana, you can never do that. The, the duality of Chloe, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> She's dumb. <laughs> so you agree. You think Eliana's dumb. Uh, it does stand to reason this adamant of the tower could be an archaic alloy or diamond, and also usable or able to be transformed into magnetic lodestone honestly like i wouldn't be surprised hmm. if this is the material that their lodestone the galavespians will talk about use it's been used in other great works though uh, i didn't even realize i was chatting with my husband today who's a big lord of the rings fan one of the three rings of power galadriel's ring the the chick with the long blonde hair eliana and the ears and shit and kate blanchett galadriel uh... Not Gasadriel, Galadriel. Anyways, but she yes. has a ring, and yes. it's called Nenya, Nenya Business, and it's set oh. with a gem of adamant. Oh. <laughs> oh god, I guess we're covering Lord of the Rings now. No, it is set with a gem of adamant, and Sauron's fortress in Mordor is made of adamant. So that's kind of sick. That's kind of crazy. Uh, Gulliver's Travels has an island made of adamant. Sir Artigle's sword in the Fairy Queen is adamant. 
The Divine Comedy by Dante has an angel sitting on adamant in it. It's throughout the Bible. Look it up. It's a thing. But less tangentially related are these two pieces. I brought up Ezekiel and the brimstone and hell and whole war being waged, Gog, Magog. In some versions of Alexander Romance, Alexander the Great builds walls of adamantine, the gates of Alexander, to keep the giants Gog and Magog from pillaging the peaceful southern lands. So I definitely think there is a connection in this to those Ezekiel passages to Gog and Magog. But of course, the most famous book that we keep talking about, the most famous poem, we should say, is Milton's Paradise Lost. And it references adamant throughout the entire whole shebang, constantly. Book one, Satan gets hurled to a bottomless perdition, dwelling in adamantine chains and penal fire. In book two, the gates of hell are described as adamantine. Book six, Satan comes towering armed in adamant and gold, and his shield is described as tenfold adamant. His armor also, and the armor worn by fallen angels, is described as adamantine. Uh, and in book ten, the metaphorical pins of adamant and chains bind the world to Satan, thus to sin and thus to death, or, here in our story, to dust. It's so interesting. I never knew that like this term had like such a such a long backstory until, I mean, we did this series, and it's of course a similar similar root, right, of uh, how you get to adamantium alloy, right, for Wolverine. It is, but um, I don't want to commend you for it, but it is. I mean, <laughs> wait, why? Um, Eliana shows up and she's like, just like in Wolverine, <laughs> just like in Wolverine, just like in. X-Men, which is uh, a literary you know, if you would podcast. Like to start, if you would like to start an X-Men podcast with Chloe, please. she's looking. It's not me. Um, but, I'm begging um, you, please. Please start I will an say, X-Men podcast with me. Something interesting, you know, is uh, we get a l- those prophecies about Will and Lyra soon, right? And clearly, uh, if Lyra's supposed to be Eve, that makes a uh, Will Adam. So Adam and Adam and so maybe that's part of, you know, his his strong will is part of that, too, as we're talking about here. Very unbreakable. Well, I've inside the door. I've lived for so long. <laughs> I actually was being very serious. I, I thought that was a serious analysis. Oh, but <laughs> I think it was great. Good job. You're thank, doing amazing. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the duality of clothes. I agree. She's so dumb. <laughs> It's so happening dumb. all at once. It's <laughs> happening all at once in her head. Fuck. <laughs> it's not even one or the other. Well, inside the door, a small blue hawk is perched on a bracket. It's Lord Roke, the spy captain, sitting on a table, as is his custom. He is no taller than Azrael's handspan. He slenders a dragonfly, but commands immense respect. He is a Galavespian, who are great spies with most of their features. Um, however, he has kind of a malevolent tongue, and he's like kind of pretty high-strung. And Pullman describes the Galavespians are small, although, and although they're small, even if they were Azrael sized, they would never be considered also small. They got big, big hearts, big energy. Lord Broke is speaking to Azrael of Lyra and what he knows of her, and kind of like ribs him a little that apparently Azrael doesn't know as much and Azrael gives him kind of a very quick glare and Lord Roke note, notes this and he realizes oh, I've kind of taken advantage of his courtesy loses his balance a second um, holding on to Azrael's wine glass though he's like fuck what was that we got a line 
A moment later, Lord Asriel's expression was bland and virtuous, just as his daughter's could be. And from then on, Lord Rogue was more careful. I love this. I love the change of his expressions. There, You know, I think this, maybe I'm making this up, but uh, I love when people use like kind of just the imagery of a storm clearing on a face. I think in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's used often to show rage pass on someone's face. And I, I feel like a storm literally passed Asriel's face here, right? Like, at first he, like, glares and the fire takes over him. And then he's bland and virtuous. And uh, it, it's interesting, too, that it's comparable to Coulter, right? Who loses her temper and rage like that. And you see that storm pass over her as well. Mm-hmm. Asriel doesn't doubt him on any of this information, but he explains he wants to understand why Lyra is the focus of the church's attention. Lord Rogue responds, the Magisterium doesn't really know, actually. Each of them are hiding secrets from the other, and they're constantly saying different things about the topic. He has spies in both of the big places, the CCD, and also the Society of the Work of the Holy Spirit. That's a mouthful. His spy in the Society is the Lady Salmachia, who is a skilled agent. She had, not unlike Lyra with the ex-Bear King, convinced the priest he's communicating with the Wisdom, through a forbidden ritual by appearing in front of him when he prayed. She lives in his bookcase now and has learned that the society thinks Lyra is the most important child to live, that the fate of everything will depend on her behavior. Yes. So both sides are very fixated on just like one each of the children, it feels to me. Maybe it's not, like, maybe that's an uncharitable reading. But it feels that way to me, right? Azrael's seeking will as a weapon, and that's what the angels have kind of fixated on. They're like, we gotta get this weapon to Azrael. Whereas, uh, on the other side, the Magisterium sees Lyra. They're very fixated on her, because they see her as a big threat, and they're trying to kill her. But neither of them see the whole picture, that, again, two children are a pair, and both are important. Yeah. That's actually what, like, helps them succeed sometimes in this story it feels like too like even in the subtle knife they won because they stuck together and because you know they they cared about each other and trust each other that feels important yeah it is important well the ccd is currently holding an inquiry however with uh witnesses from bolvanger that place Hmm. and also elsewhere uh lord rogue's other spy is chevalier tialis chevalier I, I would go Chevalier. Oh, fuck. Like the Chevalier Tialis. <laughs> I kept him updated by means of the Lodestone Resonator. I'm going to be honest. Now, whenever we do Chevalier or Chevalier or Chevalier or <laughs> Shoveler. Chevalier. Chevalier. Uh, we should just go all in Chevalier. Chevalier. I, I like Chevalier. You know, I like I like the uh, the trucks, the Chevaliers. I now, though, I'm going to hear him with a southern accent for no reason whatsoever. Oh. You know? So get ready. Get ready. It's like the return of Scoresby. I okay. love the Galavespians. I love them so much. Yeah. I am so excited. Lady Salmachia, amazing. Queen shit. Love her. Love me a good Galavespian. Love the fairy tale energy with them. Uh, I didn't really think about some of Pullman's emphasis on fairies and folklore when I first read this story, right? So thinking about the Galavespians, uh, it really brings up, you know, Thumbelina or Tom Thumb or the flower fairy, the idea of a flower fairy like in a Midsummer Night's Dream, the elves creeping into acorn cups to hide, the Tempest's Ariel singing of lying inside a cowslip bell. They ride dragonflies, let alone train them, and, and birds. Lord Roke rides a bird. 
Of course, our Galavespians are not only described, though, as flower-dwelling folk, but are also described as having been weaponized in ways, whether for themselves or for keeping themselves alive, right, self-sustainability, or as hired guns for others. We'll learn a little bit more about their history, uh, more not this week, really, in a few weeks here, but I think there's a lot of how the humans in their world were wary of them that we learned, right, trying to stamp them out, and the ones that we meet are spies and assassins involving themselves, though, with humanity's course and destiny. So not unlike the other magic folk we've met, Yorick, the angels, the witches. I do love with Galavespians that the etymology of the name is derived from an insect, the gal wasp, and the word Vespa, which is Italian for wasp. This creature forms a round, shiny, often colored chrysalis on a tree in the Dead Sea of the Middle East. So there are, there are a lot of other explanations of the name, but I think it's kind of interesting that there's also a translation that this has been called the Apple of Sodom in literary guides. Hmm. So it would be a bit of sarcasm that Pullman chose the name Galavespian. It is interesting. Sodom and Gomorrah is such an interesting story. Um, I guess putting uh, Chevalier and Salmachia into kind of context there, maybe we should think of them as that. As being from there. In some aspects, yeah. Hmm. We'll have to think huh. about that as we go yeah, along. Yeah. And the whole apple thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Considering. Well, overall, Lord Rogue thinks that the society will find out the truth. Though do nothing with it. But the CCD, however, is a different story. Once they figure it out, they will act decisively. Azrael directs him to keep posted... The news and off Lord Broke goes, springing onto his Blue Hawk saddle and flying out the window. It's pretty cool. He gets a bird, but other people just get like fucking insects. Um, Azrael <laughs> pets Del Mario, playing with her ears, and is like, "Get my big animal." Um, remembering when Lyra came to him on Svalbard, he's like, "That was that was real hard for me personally when I thought I was going to have to sacrifice my daughter." Good thing I didn't. Um, have to. Until Roger had arrived. It's very much like a what was it? Abraham. Mm -hmm. Abraham. An angel. Isaac. I don't remember if we discussed that. Yeah. Yep. Well, Isaac was going to... Or, or Ishmael. One Ishmael, of them yeah, one sacrificed. of them. One of them. Neville or Harry, pick one. Instead, the angel brought a lamb, but unfortunately for Roger, I guess, the story decided that was him. Anyway... Asriel relaxes right when Roger appears because again, what the fuck? Asriel uh, and and Mrs. Coulter brought together in romance by the idea of fuck them kids. <laughs> Anyways, uh, he now wonders: was this a fatal mistake? Have I made a huge mistake? Um, and then he like wonders: what does Lyra know? Right now that I have estranged myself from my daughter because I killed her best friend and she doesn't want to talk to me and ran away because of that. Anyways, and so they discuss that her alethiometer reading isn't actually that special. He's like, yeah, whatever. A bunch of people can do it with books. And I'm like, damn, talk about unsupportive parents. Holy shit. Right. Um, God, what does he want? He's like, Laura, this isn't an A+. Plus. God, <laughs> you weren't even there to help her study. Anyways, he wonders where the hell she is now, but... Instead, a knock on the door arrives, and the officer at the door is like, An angel is here! It's Baruch, who insists on speaking to him. So Azrael sits near the angel, throwing herbs into the fire, so he can see his body better, just as Will did before, and asks Baruch, 
what have you come to tell me? And Baruch requests that he listens to everything before Azrael speaks, right? Because he's like, I cannot be interrupted right now. So he tells him his tale, he and his partner, of the rebels' party, and they wanted to bring him something valuable, so they had climbed to the heart of the clouded mountain and learned the truth! The authority has retired to a chamber of crystal deep within the citadel. No, no longer rules in more than name. Metatron rules in his place. Proud, ambitious, and once allied to the authorities' plans 4,000 years ago. And you'd think that, like, Metatron sounds like some made-up fucking, like, Transformers name. But no, it is actually a term. It is a real term. Being the mouthpiece of God. But now... <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Chloe's playing metal music. It's a metal episode. It's a metal, uh, Through chapter. the fire and flames. Actually, literally. <laughs> literally. <laughs> Uh, but now Metatron and the Authority have a new plan. Intervene in human affairs, move the Authority to a new permanent citadel, and turn their mountain into an engine of war. His first campaign is to destroy is to destroy Azrael's Republic before turning to fix the corrupt and weak churches of the world, and then Baruch trembles from his own weakness and Azrael trembles from excitement. <laughs> <laughs> just playing metal guitar in the back oh my god <sighs> I love this line Baruch trembles from weakness Azrael trembles from excitement it, it shows that contrast between these two characters the way Philip draws that line Baruch trembling to get the info out with his very last breaths Azrael trembling to devour it with his many more it's sad but it's electric it's like a perfect explanation of those characters and I'm going to be honest, you know, when the authority's done with, like, their mass genocide and all, uh, if they're looking for a new home, why don't they just take Azriel's? It's a pretty great crib, as we just discussed, oh. right? Like, it's ready. It's prepped. It smells like farts. Yeah. It smells yeah. like farts. He's got all the weaponry, got all the defenses. Yep. Uh, Actually true. They might. That might be the plan. Baruch gathers his remaining strength, right? He, he doesn't have a lot left. He's telling Azriel about Will, the bearer of the knife. Baruch has to stop for a moment and recover because he starts to feel himself drif drifting apart. It's so sad. Because he's made of dust, Eliana. Dust. <sighs> he says that his companion is with this boy and that this boy is the son of Stanislaus Grumman. And Azriel's like, what? Grumman has a son? And then Baruch's like, no, I lied. Catch up with the subtle knife. He's not even Grumman. Liar. Uh... <laughs> He's like, he was not born here. His real name is not that. And he starts to tell Asriel, I tried to bring the boy. But then he trails off. He's pain-filled. He takes a breath. And Asriel is obviously impatient as fuck, right? He calms down, though. He's like, I'll just sprinkle more fucking herbs in the fire, which is what I do when I want to calm down. Just saying. Uh, and then Asriel's like, take your time. Smile. Uh, he, he's like, do you know where my daughter is? Asriel through gritted teeth. Yes, please take your time. Sure. Dude, he's dying like in front of you. He came all this way to give you this info and you can't even like chill for a moment and let him die in front no. of you. Jesus. The disrespect. He's all. doing the best he can. I know. Right? Which is not like, great. He's... It's not great. <laughs> I mean, he's doing a lot. There's a lot here that uh, he has brought, which, you know, it's not news to us, but... Yeah. But it's big news you know, for Asriel. Asriel should be thankful. Yeah, yeah, and like, who's very surprised that I guess his drinking buddy had a <laughs> secret son. But. 
<sighs> Baruch uh, says that and also Lyra- probably also probably that like turns out his drinking buddy also beat him to the whole crossing worlds thing yeah that's a big one like <laughs> Asriel you're just never good enough I guess I'm sorry buddy he did mm-hmm. it first uh, yeah I mean if he can't be like wow good job Lyra I'm not gonna be like good job Asriel okay I mean and I will say <sighs> that that thought of Roger is like the first time we, we see him think about Roger like that and like him go wow was what I did maybe wrong? Question mark. Uh, he he hasn't like asked that question until this chapter, and he didn't really ask it. It was just like implied, right, by the silence. But it's there. It's implied that he's like, "Wow, what did I do? Did I fuck up?" Um, and and so like here, as he has someone sacrifice himself once more at the foot of his cause, right? Like maybe Asriel is building up something to be more important. Maybe he's like, "Huh." Maybe people are dying for my cause. Maybe they do hmm, matter. He's like, and he's like, hmm, I don't know. Let's I, not think about that. Push that to the back of my mind. Uh, Fuck these people who are dying. Go faster. That's him right now. <laughs> Anyways, Baruch's like, uh, yes, Lyra is in the Himalayas of her own world and great mountains and a valley of rainbows. Nazareth is surprised and impressed. He's like, wow, that is a long ass ways from where they are. And wow, you flew very quickly, Brooke. He says, It is the only gift I have. Except the love of Baldamos, whom I shall never see again. <sighs> Pour one out. I'm so sad. I can't believe he's about to fucking die. I hate this shit. I hate this it fucking is, book. It's fuck so you, sad. Philip it's Pullman. so sad. I'm sorry, Philip Pullman. I take it back. Don't fuck you. Um, Asriel says, if you found her so easily, and Brooke's like, yes, then any angel can find her, too. Asriel asks the angel to show him where on the map Himalaya is. He's like, hey, I know you're bleeding out of dust right now, but like, if you could just lean over and just give me a stab here on this map, give me this little pinpoint, drop a pin for me. Uh, and Baruch is losing his senses, right? Like, he's murmuring, with the knife, he can enter and leave worlds. Will is his name. They're in danger. He and Balthamos. Metatron knows we have his secret. I was his brother. Whoa! Whoa! What? Whoa! whoa some lore! Whoa. Baruch! Baruch! Baruch is on fire. Um, I, I just thought that was great. You know, like, he is, uh, he is commonly known. The Book of Baruch is uh, apocryphal to the Hebrew and Protestant canons. It's not in the the Bible, right? So this is interesting because this is like deleted lore. Mm-hmm. This is uh, extra content on the, the DVD bonus edition of the Bible. The Bibles. Yeah. Um, oh my God. It's real, though. It's real shit. They're brothers. They're brothers, bro. It's real. Look it up. Google it. Baruch is the brother of Enoch. It happened. And uh, he explains that they made it into the clouded mountain, that that's how, that Metatron was Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalal, with many wives, he cast Baruch out, but he trails off and he's like, oh, thinking of my dear Balthamos, and he's losing it, he, he's going, and it's so sad, it, it is literally just such a beautiful passage of him just like bleeding dust out on this table, and the characterization for Baruch in contrast to Azrael, who's so hellbent, <laughs> pun on this war with the authorities seeming to care kind of nothing for lyra beyond the extension of her power almost here uh you know earlier he's like yeah whatever she can read an alethiometer but now that there's a a 
some sort of prophecy being milled about about people that she might be around or near or important to. He's like, interesting, interesting that Lyra is real important suddenly. It doesn't feel like he cares about where she is necessarily other than like, like he cares not because of her safety, but because he's like, oh, wow, that magisterium's going to roll up on her real quick. Baruch, though, he was cast away from his whole family. And instead of following in his brother's dark path, he chooses love and he chooses Balthamos and chooses good and not killing kids and bringing light to people and sacrificing his last breaths for these two children who he would rather spent these last breaths with the love of his life, right? He's doing this for humanity, for free will and free Lyra and free will. And uh, what's good in the world? I don't know. If I was Lyra's dad, I would drop everything, right? And go be like, wow, maybe I should go get my daughter from the clutches of my abusive ex because I know she a little crazy and maybe she's unsafe over there, you know, being drugged every day by her. But uh, he doesn't know that, obviously. In Asriel's mind, though, that's like not it, right? Like this war is obviously important. You can't just walk away from a huge ass rebellion you've started. But I don't know. One parent showed up. That's all. Yeah. I mean, it's just interesting he never even bothers to secure Lyra because a lot of people do that because they're like afraid that their family will be used against them. Yeah. And some like in by war. their enemies, but whatever. Yeah. But also there was something else that you said in terms of Baruch, uh, you know, fighting on all this for freedom, right, etc. And a freedom of thought, of course, but in general to for people to be able to choose. And I think that, you know, around the time that this book was coming out, in general, like, Baruch and Balthamos having having this like same sex relationship in a children's book was like really like eye opening, right? For probably many people, and you know during the time culture has come, I think a lot further mm-hmm. in the years since this book came out, and like it's fantastic the way that you know like acceptance has gone. I think a much longer way. There's still more of ways to go, but like I think that there's some subtext to there in regards to that when it comes to Baruch and Balthamos and wanting a world where people are free to like think and live and be themselves. Yeah. I would even say like we hear in the, the first chapter of the, this book with them, you know, that they weren't even purely just male humans before one of them was not, you know, they're transformed. I mean, it's not just two queer characters. That's really big for a children's series too. In my opinion, I do think that's big. And I think that he gets such a sad, celebrated death. He does go out here like kind of like a hero that he made it all this way and brought the news of this rebellion this far. Yeah. It's a little bit of like, you know, the unfortunate part is it, is, it does go into the trope of like kill your gaze. But yeah. at the same time, like, I, and I think I find this like so interesting because at the time, like that was big for me when I was reading this. So I was like, oh shit. Well, Asriel directs Baruch back to Lyra, and he's like, all right, I don't care about gay rights now. <laughs> Asriel, <laughs> Asriel does, does like, not say gay rights. <laughs> Asriel does not say gay rights. <laughs> oh, no. I'm going to take that off. Asriel directs Baruch back to Lyra, and he repeats, okay, okay, so a valley full of winds and rainbows with tattered flags on the shrine. Simple, easy. We're going to Google Earth, and they're going to just show us satellite photos nbd not really at all he tries to look at the atlas and it's like what the fuck is this um but an officer 
knocks at the door and just opens it without waiting. What's the point of, point of like fucking knocking if you're not going to wait for your superior? Your superior, especially in his apartment, right? He could have had someone there. He could have been doing stuff. His bed is in this apartment, but he just opens it, right? And then the suction of air just like pushes in and then like Baruch just like shivers. He can't do it anymore. And like then his particles just blow apart and that's it. And he's rolling upward and vanishing with only a whisper on the air. Balthamas. How dare you? And I'm just like, I'm just like, what the fuck, officer? It is sad, and like I, I feel bad for the officer because he didn't realize or he know. Feels, I mean, I mean, he feels bad. Yeah, Azriel like kind of comforts Delmaria because angels, of course, are made of dust, just like demons. Demons are dust. Mm-hmm. This is gonna happen to her someday. You know, we all fucking die, and uh, she feels him tremble, and he's scared too. It seems right because he trembles. She stills him though with her energy. The orderly apologizes, and Azriel tells him it wasn't your fault. And he says, take my compliments to King Agunway. He directs the orderly to gather the king and his commanders, as well as Mr. Basilides, the athletheometer reader. He asks him to arm and fuel the number two squadron of gyropters and zeppelins as well, ready to take off and head southwest. He'd send further directions after. He crosses to the window, watching the deathless fires and smoke on the air, the hammers banging in the wind, and tells Stelmaria that they've learned a lot, but not enough. They welcome the next knock at the door, Tukros Basilides, with a nightingale demon. He tells Mr. Basilides his problem that now takes priority. Pinpoint that cave, get me the coordinates as precisely as you can. This is the most important task you have ever undertaken. Begin at once, if you please. Well, that's good. You're sending someone after your daughter, you know? I'll give you that point, I guess, since you won't go yourself mm-hmm. to pick her up from her after-school activity or from her mom's house, but whatever. Whatever, Ezreal. Whatever. <laughs> You're like, none of us will have custody. If you can't have custody, Marisa, I guess I won't try either. Yep. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, but um, he, he obviously wasn't allowed. We saw that. Yes. We saw that. But he so. couldn't live both of his lives and take care of her. I understand that. This chapter is a great introduction to some of the members of Asriel's camp. We don't get a great view yet of Kanga Gunway beyond this, but we will. Uh, I think this chapter makes a Good case for some of them being more significant than Asriel himself, like, in the war, as far as why they're doing this, right? Uh, as far as free will. I mean, Asriel's, Asriel's war on the authority is, of course, inspired, but I feel like some of the people that are in this war with him as his ally, uh, I feel like some of these allies are a little more inspired, right? And could have more. But I do have some regrets with some of the backstory, like, King of Gunway, I would love to learn more of why he joins Asriel. I imagine when they adapt this to TV show, they might actually kind of embellish it a little more, you know, and give it a little more life. But uh, we have talked before a little bit about Coulter, right? She visits Africa at some point when she was a little younger than now. So it it makes me wonder if maybe the Magisterium also went to Africa after that, right? They are a little bunch of colonizing assholes, as we know. Wouldn't surprise me if maybe he's facing oppression in his land in Africa, uh, but we don't really get that backstory. I don't know. I, I do expect something to come up there. Yeah, we don't really know, I guess, where he's from in Africa. And I kind of wish that they would tell us more than just, like, from Africa. I'm like, yeah, there's, like, a shit ton of different cultures there. Yeah, especially, where- like, after this, it's just, like, the African king. The African king. The African king. I'm like, yeah, all right. Yeah, but, like, 
they're all pretty different. <laughs> but who is the African king, man? That's what I'm trying to know. You know, like, tell me more. I want to know more. Where's the moment where he explains why he's fighting for free will? Where's my big monologue, you know? I don't know. I want <laughs> Actually, more. Actually, true. I do. True. No, I agree. I do. Kind of feels, I, I don't want to be an asshole, right? Like, I, I don't write books because I can't. It's not for me. I'm not beautifully, uh, I can do shorthand writing. You know, I'm good at that, but not books. And uh, I just feel like it's there. The, the plot's there. It could be touched, but maybe, maybe that's the problem. It's too easy. Pullman likes yeah. a challenge, you know? Maybe, maybe they'll flush it out, you know, yeah. the show. I do love uh, the Mr. Basilides. This is a total reference. The Mr. Basilides, Tucros, such classic etymology. Mm -hmm. uh, Basilides is the early Christian Gnostic teacher in Alexandria, Egypt, who taught 117 AD to 138 AD, inheriting his teachings supposedly from the apostle St. Matthias. And in Greek mythology, Tukros, or Tuker, also Tukris, uh, that's the son of King Telamon of Salamis Island and his second wife Hesione, daughter of King Laomedon of Troy. He fights alongside his half-brother Ajax in the Trojan War and is the legendary founder of the city of Salamis on Cyprus. After Tuker's death, the kingdom gets incorporated into that of Dardanus, and the entire region becomes known as Dardania, mm. but in later times, the people of Troy refer to themselves as Tukrians. So I thought that was very interesting, the, uh, the, the whole little Greek mythology he gives them. And I do think there's something about the Nightingale that's interesting for him as an alethiometer reader, and we'll talk about the Nightingale a little more in the next chapter for sure. Interesting. So everyone's got their own, got their own alethiometer. It's a war towards information, you know, mm -hmm. just as much as it is a force, maybe more. It's mo mostly information at this point, so it's interesting to see how that's all ramping, right, as everyone's searching for the same people. Yeah. We get a continuation again of the dream sequence of Lyra's where she stamped her foot so hard it even hurt her in the dream. You don't believe I'd do that, Roger, so don't say it. I will wake up, and I won't forget, so there. She looked around, but all she could see were wide eyes and hopeless faces. Pale faces, dark faces, old faces, young faces, all the dead cramming and crowding, close and silent and sorrowful. Roger's face was different. His expression was the only one that contained hope. She said, Why do you look like that? Why aren't you miserable like them? Why aren't you at the end of your hope? And he said, Because... <laughs> that's chloe's lion thank you i did so great i would like to thank the academy i would like to thank that one guy at walmart that helped me read that one label that one time and my mom and my dad thank you so much um bafta bafta and speaking of bafta let's roll into preemptive absolution which is nothing but drama and let's start off the drama with john milton from book three of paradise lost Book three of this poem absolutely showcases some really great parts of, like, the loyalty to knowledge and freedom of knowledge that both John Milton and Philip Pullman have. This line that he quotes at the top of the chapter is, Relics, beads, indulgences, dispenses, pardons, bowls, the sport of winds. You don't have to be a scientist to understand uh, kind of where that's going, since this is a magisterium-heavy chapter, right? Preemptive absolution. Uh, is so displayed here with men choosing it for what they're about to do, which is, in this case, literally just premeditated murder. It's a fancy sinner's way of saying premeditated murder in this chapter. 
they call it preemptive absolution, but that's just for fun. This passage is largely referencing, uh, in the poem especially, the difference between like Franciscan monks or like choosing the life of monkhood versus greedy, corrupt priests who are taking power at the cost of others. Some would say maybe even at the cost of those others' souls, right? They're taking those souls. A longer version of the passage really displays that. They passed the planet seven and passed the fixed, and that crystalline sphere whose balance weighs, the trepidation talked and that first moved. And now St. Peter at heaven's wicket seems to wait them with his keys and now at foot of heaven's ascent when they lift their feet, when lo, a violent crosswind from either coast blows them transverse, ten thousand leagues awry into the divious air. Then might ye see cowls, hoods, and habits with their wearers toss and fluttered into rags, then relics, beads, indulgences, dispenses, pardons, bowls, the sport of winds, all these upworld aloft fly o'er the backside of the world far off, into a limbo, large and broad, since called the paradise of fools to few unknown, long after, now unpeopled and untrod. Uh, I, I just think that difference of what these priests and these fathers in this passage are, or in this chapter are becoming at the magisterium as they turn their cheek to the dark side. It's described so well here of that difference between uh, the selfless priests and the corrupt. Yeah, and the lines that are called out there, especially some of it, very interesting that especially indulgences, dispenses, pardons, bulls, and we'll come back to that in a second. Definitely pardons going but for now, on. Mm-hmm. The Inquirer, the CCD, has Fra Pavel on trial as a witness and wants to know the words that he heard the witch speak on the ship. He looks scholarly with his frog demon nearby, and this is the eighth day of evidence in the High Tower College of St. Jerome. Fra Pavel says that he cannot recall the witch's words exactly as he'd never seen torture before, so, so that uh, very much shocked him and made him feel faint and sick imagine how the witch felt um but fra pavel knew the meaning of it of her words lyra was recognized by the clans of the north as a subject of prophecy heard long before with the power to make a fateful choice on which all worlds depended and i just i just want to say in general like these four chapters that we're going through, um, but especially the the last three are some great structuring from pullman as we go from like hell to the church right and more of that information about lyra but also like here like why is everyone so fascinated with her like that's that question starts in the previous chapter and we get more of those answers here and it's a scene that is also held together because it's uh being watched and relayed by that same network of little spies yes totally spies totally spies the gala vespians And there was a name that Lyra was called, or that she would be called, Fra Pavel says, and and the church would hate her and fear her, but the witch had not uttered the name because another witch, under an invisibility spell, killed her and escaped. The court asks if Coulter would know, and he says she would not, and she also kind of fled, like, immediately after that. He tells them he learned the child went through to the new world opened by Asriel and has acquired the help of a boy with a very special knife. Pavel asks to speak freely, and the president of the court says he will not be punished for presenting what he had been told. Pavel explains the knife can create a window between worlds, the power to kill most high angels and even higher than them. There is nothing that this knife cannot destroy, he says. 
I'm really finding Pavel's character so interesting this reread. I was going to say compelling, but I don't think that's a, com- a a good word. He's not compelling. Pavel's not compelling by any means, but he's interesting. He's a God-fearing man, right? That much is made apparent, but also made apparent that it's not just God he fears. He fears power. Powerful men, like McPhail. Powerful women, like Coulter. And, and I'm going to be honest, I kind of forgot McPhail was in the books until this reread. I was like, oh yeah, you're kind of forgettable. In the show, you're a lot different. You're, mm-hmm. you're not Father McPhail, you're Daddy McPhail. In the show. Yeah, he's literally literally the dad. Literally. Uh, Daphne Keaton. Powerful. But anyways, yes, powerful prophecies, powerful magic. Pavel's afraid of power. He's also kind of playing coy because I, I think he has an understanding of power and what certain things mean. Here he's like, oh, heresy, I'm so afraid to say it. He's securing insurance, securing safety. And, and in a way, it does feel like he also, I don't, I don't want to say he believes in it, but he understands the power and what saying these things out loud means, what giving this information to the magisterium mm-hmm. means. And he seems almost afraid of the power that Lyra and her prophecy wields because he seems to he seems to kind of believe it. Uh, I think it definitely comes from being an alethiometer reader on one hand, right? Seeing that course of life that is spread out beyond him that could happen or could not happen, always just one hand away from that fate. The ink is there, but it's still wet. He's kind of weaselly otherwise. He has no backbone. Yeah. But I like this juxtaposition of him that he is weighing all of these things at once. The world's on his shoulders as he reads this alethiometer and telling them this great prophecy is is a, a big choice that he does not make easily here. And the torture of the witch, the power Coulter wielded over this highly magnificent, intelligent, magical being was horrible and terrible. And he himself claims to have peeled away from seeing it. But it does make me wonder... Is he more afraid of what that knowledge and revealing would mean to the court and to people of the earth who seek free will and what will happen to them? Because he is a person of the earth, right? When, when, as we've just discussed, the authority wants to come cleanse it all. They're done with your asses. They're done with the magisterium. You guys are in line to be done for. Uh, I, I think Pavel understands that this knowledge is terrible, big knowledge. And it's almost as if his true fear is what he's about to tell them. Yeah, there's something interesting going on there because you're talking about his fear of the power that others hold over him, and it almost seems to some extent like there's a fear of his own power in this knowledge, right? He's mm-hmm. scared of him, his own Free ability because, because, yeah, knowledge is also power, but it's also like to what extent is it, especially when you have physical force going on here, right? And the Magisterium has been able to exert power over a lot of this, a lot of civilization in Lyra's world because they have been able to control uh, knowledge, right? Um, it's a great example of that whole idea of tyranny of heaven, which is a phrase that comes from Paradise Lost, um, especially as we're leading into this whole preemptive absolution part, uh, because the church, again, gets to control knowledge and what truth is, and all of those ethics, and they console Pavel over and over again that, you know, reminding him that it's fine for him to report what he has been told, that he will not be punished. And to an extent, maybe it's like he values his position of holding that knowledge within the magisterium. Does he feel that he is putting his position, right, the power that he has at risk uh, with all of this? And that you were saying if he believes what's going to happen next, is he afraid of it? Is he afraid of it coming to pass? Because then that threatens, again, his position and the power that he has within this structure. But also, yeah, I mean, everything that's going here shows 
that lack of freedom of knowledge and speech that the magisterium has created uh, that you were talking about. And then also, again, how the church is redefining ethics with what you said earlier, you know, premeditated murder. It's, it's becoming allowed. So Yeah, it's just normalized. It's becoming completely normalized. That is interesting that he's afraid of his own free will and his own role, right? And uh, as he tells them in just a second, like, he can rearrange things, you know, like, the fate hasn't happened yet, but it could happen if this path is taken. I don't make the rules, I just tell you what the rules are. <laughs> yeah, world's split apart. Yeah. He's sweating and trembling, and Pavel- too, right? Like, he's, oh, yeah. like, freaking out from all this. This is a high-pressure situation. Speaking of heresy, <laughs> the Inquirer is like, well, did you discover the name? Like, tell me. And he did. The president again says, you're not a heretic. Don't waste our time. Tell us. And he reveals the child is in the position of Eve, the wife of Adam, the mother of us all, the cause of all sins. Yes, Lyra, this girl is the cause of all sins on earth over and over. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> the stenographers. I mean, they're definitely the cause of like these men's sins, I guess, now that they're all like, fuck them kids too. Yeah, I mean, I guess if that gives them a reason, you know, to sleep at night or whatever. <laughs> God. The stenographers are nuns of St. Philomel, and they're sworn to silence, and even they gasp at this. I love this. So this is another reference. This is a princess of Athens, Philomela. While the myth has several variations, the depiction is Philomela, after being raped and mutilated by her sister's husband, Tyrus, obtains her revenge and is transformed into a nightingale, a bird renowned for its song. But because of the violence that is associated with the myth, the song of the nightingale is often depicted or interpreted as a sorrowful lament. In nature, the female nightingale is actually mute, and only the males of the species sing. I thought that tied in is such a great reference he built into the nuns of St. Philomel who are sworn to silence, the nightingales here, uh, especially when we talk about the nightingale earlier on in Asriel's chapter that the the man that reads for them, which we don't know too gross his background, but he has a nightingale demon. So he is allowed to speak and he is allowed to read and do his thing, but these stenographers are silent. They're just frogs croaking. Croak, croak, croak. Pavel reminds the court that the alethiometer does not forecast, right? As you were saying, if it says if things come about, the consequences then will be. He's like, Lyra may not fall, but if she is tempted, like Eve, she may fall. This is a distinct possibility, and the outcome will, you know, just inform pretty much everything ever, and thus, and sin may triumph. NBD. <laughs> Uh, yeah, one of the common themes across this chapters is definitely that importance and also not importance behind the alethiometer, as we mentioned with Asriel, who brushed it off. He's like, it's not that special that she can read the alethiometer and brought in Tukros, his own reader. And now here we have Fra Pavel, a third reader, blowing the lid off of that alethiometer magic. And of course, Mary in the next chapter with the Yijing even uh, shows hmm. that dust can be read in many different ways. It is interesting that Asriel seems to disrespect the art and the office of the alethiometer, right? Uh, here, Pavel is explaining it so delicately and intimately and tenderly. It's a tool that he's known and used and treasured, and that does come off compared to Asriel in the last chapter. Yeah, interesting. Well, 
After everyone overcomes this mega drop of drama, the Inquirer asks him the child's whereabouts. He says that Mrs. Coulter keeps her in the Himalaya and that he will continue to work hard toward a more precise location. So again, you got that information race here. And he hesitates, and Father McPhail pulls the next bit out of him. He thinks that the society might actually know more about this than they do, and might be on the move, and the president is obviously pissed about this, and Frappavel's little frog demon whimpers. I didn't know frogs could whimper. Um, mm-hmm. The rivalry between the branches is pretty famous, and getting caught in between those is bad, but he would rather not hold back any information at this time. Frappavel tells him that they are closer to finding the child due to their other hidden sources. And he had learned all of this from the alethiometer. The president instructs him to continue investigating, and whatever he needs and his secretarial help is his to command. Frappavel is then dismissed, and Father McPhail dismisses the nuns, asking for the transcripts. By end of day. Yeah, and we read the departmental amity, you know, is really sticking out between the society and the CCD. Uh, they're both bloodthirsty and hated by all, but mm-hmm. the society seems to be smarter, faster, and better. And I wonder if this could have any bearing in the future of politics in the story, right, in the Books of Dust. Hmm. I don't really have any further thoughts on that. I just do consider, I'm like, huh, I wonder if this is going to become important in those books at some point. It uh, it feels like a Veep episode with everyone just working <laughs> against each other, right? Like Father McPhail is yeah. just like sitting there looking at Father Fra Pavel and he's like, why is that your hair, Pavel? Why? You know? <laughs> It's the most accurate depiction of government. It is. It feels veep, veep, and it feels yeah. like this. This depiction of authority, right here, is a magisterium. Kind of like this. Yeah. Same thing. Watch yep. veep. You have to, especially as they're like, "But what if we did this bad thing?" <laughs> I mean, we are kind <laughs> of. But we veep. didn't do that bad thing. We didn't know that. Yeah. We're kind of a veep podcast now, is what we're trying to imply. So. Yeah. Yeah. Episode one. Here we are. No, I'm just kidding. So, the president, but not that president, this president, speaking of Veep, uh, adjourns the consistorial court, and the twelve members from oldest, Father McEpwe, who's ancient, to the youngest, Daddy Gomez, <laughs> who's pale, trembling, with zealotry. I don't know why they cast that person as Father Gomez. Like It's, it's real so ridiculous. Um, He's so good looking, and they shouldn't have done that. It's fucked up. Anyways, they gather their notes and follow the president to the council chamber where they can then speak in privacy. Father McPhail, the current president, had been elected quite young. Presidents served for life, and it was expected that he would mold the destiny of the church for many years to come. He was dark-featured, tall, imposing, with a shock of gray hair. A lizard demon, and completely ripped, thanks to his very humble diet and personal trainer. I love the way Pullman says this here, because he buries the lead. He's like... He would be fat if he wasn't. Like, he straight up is, like, saying like, that. What? It's such yeah, a stupid... Right? It's weird. I'm not sure why, but I It's so weird. It. It's very strange. It's very weird. Yeah. It was, uh... What does it even mean? It was funny. Uh, once the men have been seated, McPhail tells them the dark details left out at court. Asriel's assembling an army, including angels, malevolent to the church and authority. The Oblation Board wants to replace the CCD to their chagrin, and they will need to do something about it. They must destroy the boy with the knife that Fra Pavel talked about. And the Oblation Board and theologians from Bullvanger have information on dust for them. As soon as uh, McPhail says he's going to question the people downstairs, one of the men kind of shifts uncomfortably. And then we get the, the thought process here that it's soundproofed down there. And it's a white tile room with great drainage. Ugh, little trough Mm-mm. action going on there. Bleeding them out. Alrighty. Alrighty, the authority is out there. 
Father McPhail continues, right? He's like, well, we need to be wary about what we learn and keep our purpose in our mind, not unlike Asriel in the last chapter saying they needed to learn more. The Oblation Board wanted to understand dust, but they must now destroy that altogether. The CCD has to destroy the Oblation Board, the College of Bishops, every agency the Holy Church does the work of the authority through. And that brings them to point five, the child, a.k.a. Eve, a.k.a. Lyra. Based on the past story of Eve, she'll probably fall, so he proposes a very radical path to kill her beforehand. Father Gomez is just, like, super jazzed about this. I love killing kids. He, <laughs> yeah, he's like, it's like, he has been doing, and then it says, preemptive penance every day of my adult life. Same. I'm like, bro, what? <laughs> I got that, And though. that preemptive penance and absolution were a, I guess, method researched and developed by the consistorial court but it's very secret. It's self-scourging and flagellation. Maybe not self. I don't know, but I assume so. Uh, for sins not yet done in order to grant absolution before committing sin, even if never called, like, for murder. And everyone agrees to this. And I'm just like, I don't, this doesn't seem like sound, like, scientifically, theologically, yeah. in any way. Anyways, we have a line here of, like, he will be invisible. He will come in the night like the angel that blasted the Assyrians. He will be silent. Yeah, the self-flagellation is very crazy, and we actually they they gave us that in that TV show, right? Now that now that you mentioned that, I, I forgot that we got it in the TV show. But that line is crazy. That is like a Bible line. Yeah, it sounds like it. It really does. He will be invisible. He will come in the night. Sounds like the angel of death, right? Mm -hmm. Of course. Um, and and really is reminiscent of like they talk about here for the blast of the Assyrians, but is reminiscent of like the plagues. Yeah. Right, the angel of death in that last one. Pestilence, yeah. Assyrian. Um. Well, those were the Egyptians, but like, yeah, yeah like the, the last one where the, every firstborn is killed, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, this is definitely the firstborn, right? Lyra is uh, on that list. <laughs> this is Shit, she's an only child. Do only children count? Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I don't know in this scenario. I wish we knew. If you're from the authority or the magisterium, please drop us an anonymous Do line. Do I count? Yeah. Would, also would the last you kill born. me? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I love that this has just become a LARP, like a, a, a LARP of misogyny yeah. and murdering. They're just grown men out here LARPing their murdering Eve fantasy. It feels very secret society, right? Very in line with that third book of Paradise Lost and the men in their crystalline wares. This isn't monkhood. This is appreciating of life or nature, which I, I do love how this chapter is placed next to Mary Malone's chapter, right? Because like you said, we have these three chapters of these people, you know, searching for information and trying to find Lyra for something, but then you get Mary alone. We do, and it, it it's interesting the way all of these are structured together. And I, this whole idea of preemptive absolution is so funny. It's so ridiculous. Um, I feel like there's very little theological substance to this rationale again, which I guess is the whole point, right? Like, it's kind of pointing also to the hypocrisy that like some show in their faith like in, in real life right also mm -hmm. where they believe that their faith in jesus or god absolves them from their sins when the whole point of penance slash repentance is that you're also doing these things and the understanding that you're striving to goodness and you may fail but you're not intentionally doing it and trying to like do things like i don't know murdering kids right mm -hmm. there's no like yeah 
That's definitely totally. intense. This is totally what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. It's definitely, like, not okay. <laughs> um, it's in the 10. It's, it's, it's in the big 10. Don't murder. Yeah, right? Like, it definitely is in the big 10. You know, all the way back there, right? God, like, from the get-go is like, this is definitely in the commandments, all right? Uh, no murdering. The kid's part isn't in it, but I'm pretty sure he's also, like, not into that. Thy neighbor. Right. I mean, Jesus loves the little children, okay? I sang that song, Jesus loves the little children. Yeah, Jesus oh, so that's loves like, me, this I know. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, so it's funny that like the, the chapter opens again with those lines, indulgences, dispenses, pardons, bulls. Not like too familiar with bulls, but indulgences, right, mm-hmm. were a thing that was like part of the catholic church much more popular back then especially the middle ages where um it was often given out it's sort of like a it's considered like a permit like a in quotes way to reduce the amount of punishment one has to undergo for sins Mm -hmm. and at first you know it was kind of used as, as like a not really a tithe, but like way to support charities. But like as the church in the Middle Ages grew more and more corrupt, they kept trying to sell indulgences like, yeah, you totally need this so that like you can secure your spot into heaven and like you won't be punished as much and things like that. So just keep buying indulgences. And so it kind of really shows along with those other parts of like, this is not theologically sound, uh, the corruption of this church. Like there's, this is so immoral, but I kind of also want to dig into like some of the methods of preemptive absolution that Father Gomez has been doing. Uh, I find them a little interesting because none of them, interestingly, are praying or penance. Because oh my god, what if praying like actually forces you to like do some meditation and self reflection on like yourself and who you are and why you're interested in killing children? But instead, he's chosen this thing that's more about the infliction of pain unto oneself. And again, flagellations called out and flagellants are what people who practice flagellation usually again self-flagellation are called and it's practiced usually out of tra- tradition in some like more roman catholic areas and that includes the philippines on holy week <laughs> you can kind of see it sometimes on like tv or whatever i haven't got to see it in person because that doesn't i'm not into that but in some places you know people will go on the streets it'll be like a whole parade thing on holy week and you got people like you know just throwing and like whipping their cell themselves and yet motherfuckers are pissed about pride let me just tell you <laughs> yeah um so so that's a thing right and and they're kind of doing it to flagellate themselves also to like that's sort of i guess in a way for them meditative to feel what christ did but that doesn't seem like what father gomez's like motivation here is not very christ-like now no it, it brings up some of my questions again of like this whole thing about metatron and the first angel like the authority right and we've discussed before a little bit how interesting it is that jesus is like rarely mentioned in the series only mentioned twice as is the term christian and both come from miriam alone and it's never been in the context of lyra's world slash like the the magisterium like that church entity only within the context of like our world so i'm like so what what is the basis then of like lyra's church is there christianity in lyra's church what the fuck is this church then right is is jesus not there and if he isn't then why are they practicing flagellation which is like 
It's kind of intentionally supposed to imitate like what happened to Jesus on his way towards crucifixion. And I think it was like mentioned a little in the book of dust, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus. But I'm still just like, it doesn't seem like it's a big part of the whole like Christian ethos here at all. And they never use again, the term Christian. Well, and it's interesting you say that, right? Because that does feel, and this is not really a spoiler, but like an expansion because that is Lyra's world that we're hearing that in. So yeah, I'm just kind of surprised. Maybe that is a late stage Pullmanism move, you know, like maybe he was like, all right, we'll bring him in a little um but even that it's like so small yeah so strange it is small i'm not sure and i would love to learn i I hope there's a little clarity on that when we get into that last book of dust someday when it happens look under your chair i'm just kidding yeah i mean there might not be yeah might be like i don't know jesus seems chill i just don't like the structure that's been built around him the church clearly but then it's also interesting that that's the translation in will and mary's world of what the church has become Right, like that the church evolved and that they needed something to put themselves beneath that wasn't just the magisterium. You know, their world evolved into Christianity and broke off into other branches of religion, and uh, it seems. Yeah, no one even really worships, though. No one even, yeah. like, goes to church. Well, like, no one goes to church, you know what I mean? Like, I or mean, a mass or anything. Art imitates what life. Is- just kidding. True, <laughs> very true, but... Anyway. Then we get a jump cut and we go to the man from Bullvanger, who's sitting in a tight little area, light and dirty clothes with his rabbit demon. Not my favorite rabbit demon, but it'll do. It's Dr. <laughs> Cooper. <laughs> right, like I'm like, um, it's not my favorite Arctic hair, but okay. It'll do. It's Dr. Cooper. Uh, this is this is a cell. It's a chair, a bunk, a bucket. McPhail's visiting and asks Dr. Cooper about severing Lyra, or almost severing her, but Cooper's like, Mrs. Coulter intervened, and he discloses that the whole program was pretty distressing for him. It was distressing for everyone, I think, especially the children. Yeah, he had thought the program was approved by the CCD, and he says, or else he never would have done it, that's what they all say. Uh, Sure. Great parallel with Pavel at the start, right, talking about the torture, showcasing the magisterium's willing to uh, do to people, that they are willing to hurt people. And uh, it, it does bring back some of those vibes in that first book of, you know, those those doctors who they had to make those great choices of, oh, do I do a horrible thing that could lead to, like, the mass murder of a bunch of children? Or, uh you know, is it for the greater good or do I just, like, say no and not do it? And they did it. <laughs> So, yeah, the only thing that would have stopped them was like that it wasn't approved by this department and like, okay, yeah, or that like Uh, Hitler called and said, maybe pull it off. You know what I mean? Like, holy shit, Jesus, Uh, you're seeing the results. Come on, you guys. So, yeah, McPhail then brings up, well, what about Asriel's research? Do you know about it? What was there anything about that? Why was there all that energy going on? And Dr. Cooper's like, well, we know some things about severing and releasing energy and that controlling it takes a lot of force, but it can be done with powerful ambaric currents, like an atomic explosion. You know, just really hmm. easy information in case anyone's taking notes that would want to use it. Just putting it out there. Could it come back? We don't yeah. know. Uh, for some reason, no one had taken Asriel's work seriously because it was like heretical and all. And, and now here we are, giant hole in the sky. And McPhail is like, Listen, listen, mini pep talk, buddy. Forgiveness is earned by cooperation. Tell us everything and we'll put you in a nice room and give you writing utensils, maybe a stenographer. They don't talk. 
uh, anything you want, and you just need to remember everything your buddy, your colleague there, studied, and then he leaves. Wow. What a crazy bit that, like, McPhail just proved he's willing to embrace heresy to the fullest if it means he obtains power, if it means moving ahead, if it means beating the society or the woman. And that's showcased here. He's willing to learn Asriel's research as long as it means he'll rise. Preemptive absolution. God wants me to be better than the society, better than Asriel, better than Marisa. It's clear, right? They think that they get to define what morality is. So anything that they are like, yeah, this is fine. This is forgiveness, right? It plays into that idea of absolution and indulgences. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's also very in line, I think, with what we learned about Metatron's character that, like, the seizing of power, right? And that's kind of what McPhail is doing a little bit here. Trying to do within the politics of this whole magisterium. And, you know, I'm going to just say, like, when it comes to Asriel's, like, work Mm -hmm. and what they hope to do with this knowledge, right, I think because they are always, like, thinking of it as heretical, right? Mm -hmm. For the most part, until, like, I don't know, whatever, that... They're often a few steps behind, but yeah. they do what they can. If you embraced magic, bro, the magic of life. This is sci- This is not ma- magic. This is science. Experimental theology. It can be both. <laughs> so we get back to our gal of Aspian spy in the corner, Chevalier Tialis, who is speeding through Geneva to meet up with Lady Salmachia, the other gal of Aspian. Things are very dangerous for them because they're small. For example, cats, dogs, dangerous. They meet at the seventh of their many meeting places. Lady Selmachia's contact in the society had gotten an invite from Father MacPhail. Tialis thinks MacPhail won't disclose the assassin and shares the entire thing we just heard. They both talk about Lyra, how they hope to meet this girl one day, especially because their lives are very short. They're only nine to ten years, and both of them are eight. They tend to die very strong, but suddenly. Compared to them, Lyra's life is as long as a witch's. Hmm. Tialis returns to the College of St. Jerome to text a message to Lord Roke on the old lodestone resonator. Mm-hmm. And while the Galavespians were talking, Father MacPhail sends for Father Gomez and prays with him, then gives him some trip resources and also a couple of, like, warnings of, like, how this is all gonna go. Alright, Gomez is gonna be entirely on his own. Also... Congratulations on this quest. Also, you can never come back. That's it. You cannot, like, return to the church or speak to anyone again. Uh, And McPhail says that looking for Lyra also would give him away. So instead of looking directly for Lyra, you gotta look for the tempter instead and use that to find the child. And interestingly, it says uh, of of the tempter, like, she will lead you to the child. (laughs) Because the alethiometer has told him that and that the tempter is a strange one. Uh, And he tells Gomez to not get distracted. And then Gomez's little beetle demon clicks, which I think is interesting. So now we know Gomez's demon, and he gets a packet of papers. Hooray! These are resources. Uh, Actually, it is. It's everything that they know about the woman, the tempter. And then, in a feat that makes everything worth it, from the self-torture to being excommunicated from the church, Gomez finally gets called by his first name, by President Father McPhail. Calls him Luis. And then he cries before kissing MacPhail goodbye. What a dramatic passage. I love it so much. It's just pure drama. How much better for us all if, if there had been a Father Gomez in the Garden of Eden. We would never have left paradise. 
The young priest was nearly weeping with pride. The court gave its blessing. Oh my god, shut up. It just reminds me of the, uh, hey fellas, is it gay if meme? Like, if you hate women so much, is it okay to kiss men? Oh my god. <laughs> it is. It is, it, it is. is that. It's completely it fine, but it's just funny that they're doing it. Uh, especially because, yeah. like, Father Gomez is just a fucking gilded 21-year-old safari hunter. Like, he straight up is, yeah, like, the kid that lived on your street that wanted to shoot squirrels with a BB gun. Okay, like, that's who yeah, Father Gomez actually, is. It's fucked. Not too dissimilar, I guess, from Mrs. Coulter. Yeah, um, true. Bat style. Oh, there you go. Yeah, the bat. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's definitely a through line there. But I'm just, like, that idea of, like, yeah, if we had a Father Gomez in the Garden of Eden, then... We would have never left paradise. I'm like, do you not understand like what the concept of the Garden of Eden is? Like, how did y'all get to this point in the church and like completely miss the whole fucking point of like the Garden of Eden is a place of innocence of no sin, right? Where we followed like God and like I guess do they not have the Ten Commandments, right? Because I feel like Father Gomez like killing Eve, right? Yeah, she might not have eaten from, like, the tree of knowledge, but that in itself, that is a sin. That is a a fall in and of itself, an act of disobedience, because, you know, murder. But I'm just like, do they not? Anyway. Uh, that's all I got. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, it is, that's great. I didn't really think about that, that, like, he is sinning in the garden. Fa- yeah. Daddy Gomez in the garden with his rifle like a clue episode like that here. in and of itself oh my god <laughs> anyway well we get back to our blackout before we end the chapter with lyra and roger you're lyra then she realized what that meant she felt dizzy even in her dream she felt a great burden settle on her shoulders and to make it even heavier sleep was closing in again and roger's face was receding into shadow well i i know there's all kinds of people on our side, like Dr. Malone. You know there's another Oxford Roger, just like ours? Well, she... I found her and... She'd help... But there's only one person really who... It was almost impossible now to see the little boy, and her thoughts were spreading out and wandering away like sheep in a field. But we can trust him, Roger, I swear, she said with a final effort. That language, wandering away like sheep in a field, her thoughts spreading out. It's like when Baruch was trying to hold themselves together, the atoms of dust. Mm. That's what it sounds like. Interesting. I I thought it was another, like, kind of, again, channeling the whole biblical imagery of, like, the shepherd and shit. Mm. Both. Why not both? Also, yeah, it is a little both. No, I think so. I think Philip Pullman's good at that. Well, sharpen Speaking your pencils. Of double meanings. Sharpen your pencils. Get out your books. We're on the last chapter. Mary alone. So this time, our line is last. Rose as in dance the stately trees and spread their branches hung with copious fruit. Also John Milton. Who saw that coming? Uh, wonder what that part of the poem could mean. Do you think it's referencing something? Also, I have to mention, not a spoiler, but interesting roses are involved. There is a chapter in this book where two roses are, are drawn, doodled, that Pullman draws, by the way. He, he draws the chapter mm-hmm. things. And if you have not read that chapter yet, I am preemptive absolution apologizing for your life when you get there. But 
roses. Interesting. 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 Well, one last thing before we get to the chapter. I want to say that this is the best chapter title in the entire His Dark Material series. Uh, it is entitled, as you all know, Mary Alone, which is a... Her name is Mary Malone. Fucking brilliant. Amazing job, Mr. Pullman. I, I'm, not, I'm not joking. This is, to me, the best chapter title in the whole series. <laughs> Chloe, again, I agree. Also, Eliana is dumb. Eliana no, I'm so just dumb. kidding. <laughs> the duality of Eliana. This is one of those moments. Of Chloe. Yeah. I too think it's a great chapter title. It is very fun. I agree. It's good. Maybe not it's to brilliant. the extent of the best one, but I think it's up there. It's the best one. <laughs> the tempter is being tempted by an old couple trying to give her food. This old couple is afraid of specters, but the specters steer clear of Mary Malone, which is why the old couple gives her wine, cheese, bread, and olives to stick around to not leave them Mary alone. During her time in Chitigatse, Mary saw the devastation to the adults and the scattered children scavenging, left behind, but she knows she can't stay to keep the specters away, that she must leave and be Mary alone soon, and this is sad. It's very sweet. She's protecting them. Uh, she can give them this last moment to have their food to maybe even say goodbyes that they might not have been able to when under attack by specters. And it's sad she can't stay because she has a bigger journey and that wheel of life seems to be important to follow here. The show played with this a little in their uh, plot lines in season two, right? They showed her caring for some people in this uh, Angelica Paula plot line. And I hope we see something like this in season three, just this mini scene of her helping other people. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I would do it though. I would stay for the wine and the cheese, oh, yeah. the bread and the olives. I would have stayed, and then like the old couple would be fucked anyway because then the angels would abandon me. Yeah, because be like, you're useless. She's... Yeah, they'd be like, clearly she's not. She doesn't deserve our uh, protection. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mary Malone recalls what the shadow particles had told her: go through the window and then find the boy and girl and play the serpent. What does it mean? I don't know what it means. What is? I mean, I don't know. What does it mean? Anything. Panina, anything. Away from the farm, well, she consults the Yijing, which she had brought with her, mostly for sentimentality. Her grandfather had gifted it to her as a child, but also because Lyra told her it was a way to communicate with dust. She also brings her copy of the Book of Changes, which we're about to read about. She finds the ritual returning to her, and she translates the first symbol, which she gets, turning to the summit for provision of nourishment brings good fortune. Spying about with sharp eyes like a tiger with insatiable craving. So, in Yijing, from the Oracle of the Moon, this here that she translates is six in the fourth place, which refers to someone occupying kind of a position of power, striving to let their light shine forth, though, so a good position of power. The hungry tiger symbolizes her being out on the lookout for uh, people that are helping her cause, righteous people, so in this case, Will and Lyra, and that the reader is not working for themselves in this hexagram, but for the good of all. It represents perseverance yielding good fortune. She reads on and finds commentary about mazy paths, and she gets to a line of, Keeping still is the mountain. It is a bypath. It means little stones, doors, and openings. This is a loose translation from the Book of Changes, and this represents a part of the trigram that she is reading. So the part of the trigram is the mountain, or what is represented as Jen. 
though I'm not sure which exact trigram she's reading, but the actual passage Pullman's taking from here is, Jen is a bypath. It means little stones, doors and openings, fruits and seeds. Jen is the transition between one phase and another. Silence when breathing changes, from breathing in and out, when change stops, when change starts again. The state of contemplation, meditation, like we were talking about with reading the alethiometer earlier, likely the state that Lyra enters when she reads the alethiometer or anyone would enter is probably considered Jen, considered that space between things. Yeah, absolutely. And we talked about this a little more in one of the television episodes of like the connection between the Yijing and programming languages. So mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, I mean, I think this is a great, this is a great way of interpreting all of that and figuring out how, how um, Mary got there. Cause I probably would have been like, fuck, I don't know. Uh, again, I would have made very different decisions from Mary, all of which were probably bad for the world. Yeah, she does great. All I wouldn't want to be yeah, in her she role. she does great. Mm-mm. I would have eaten, the, I would have stayed for the wine and cheese, and I would have been like, I don't know what the fuck this means, and given up. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mary assumes openings is about the windows between worlds, and that it tells her to go upwards, so she does it. Amazing job. Four hours later, I also would have not done this. Four hours later, <laughs> after much tiring and hot trucking, the sun is almost setting and she's about to settle and rest when she suddenly notices the light's kind of weird. And wow, look, amazing. It's the window. Yay. <laughs> the nighttime is what helped her spot it. She has time and thus like investigates this one. And and we get this like little uh, omniscient narrator like thing telling us about when the window was made around the time of the American Revolution. But the bearer who made it was careless and thus didn't close it uh mary doesn't know all this she she ends up stepping through and finds herself at the low area of a plane while like kind of like a prairie or a savanna but also not at all because it's a different world so everything is new and i just put in all of the imagery in here because i thought it was all very good i think so too to begin with, although most of it was covered in short grass and an infinite variety of buff brown green ochre, yellow golden shades, and undulating very gently in a way that the long evening light showed up clearly, the prairie seemed to be laced through and through with what looked like rivers of rock with a light gray surface. And secondly, here and there on the plain were stands of the tallest trees Mary had ever seen. Attending a high-energy physics conference, once in California, She had taken time out to look at the great redwood trees and marveled, but whatever these trees were, they would have overtopped the redwoods by half again, at least. Their foliage was dense and dark green, their vast trunks gold-red in the heavy evening light, and finally, herds of creatures too far off to see distinctly grazed on the prairie. There was a strangeness about their movement that she couldn't quite work out. Hmm. Hmm. Well, strange. Mary rests and refills her water at a nearby spring, then eats bread and cheese and sleeps. The sun wakes her and she can see more of the world, like flocks of birds that look like dust, being so far away. She then heads towards the nearest stand of trees, and there are many cool plants, which again, I've decided that this is worthy of being read aloud. The grass was knee-high, and growing among it were low-lying bushes, no higher than her ankles, of something like juniper. And there were flowers like poppies, like buttercups, like cornflowers, giving a haze of different tints to the landscape. And then she saw a large bee, the size of the top segment of her thumb, visiting a blue flower head and making it bend and sway, 
But as it backed out of the petals and took to the air again, she saw it was no insect. For a moment later, it made for her hand and perched on her finger, dipping a long, needle-like beak against her skin with the utmost delicacy, then taking flight again when it found no nectar. It was a minute hummingbird, its bronze-feathered wings moving too fast for her to see. Too fast, too few. Oh my god. I just love the way that we get this description of this world as we enter it in these chapters. And I also think that, like, Philip Pullman has done a great job of structuring, like, the unfolding of all of this, like, multiverse. Starting from, like, with book two, right? Where we really get to see it. Also in book one, but really get to see it um, into here, right? Because uh, obviously we have some of the supernatural elements in Lara's world of things that we don't know, like the gas, right? And the Panzerbjorn. But besides the specters in Chittagatse, we actually haven't seen too much of like a variety of life among the different worlds that's really like markedly different to show us what it could be. And like after, you know, that gradual thing in book two, again, with the specters, it starts unfolding more here with these three chapters introducing us to it and dispersing it with Asriel, meeting all kinds of different, like, kinds of humanity when it comes to the Galavespians, right? And then those who stand in the way when it comes to the Magisterium, right, kind of giving us this plot too. And then we come back to Mary, who gives us a glimpse into... You know, perhaps what Azrael had to do, right, when he entered all these different worlds and um, just meet the different kinds of humanity there, which, again, Azrael did extremely quickly, and I just assume he's an extrovert, but... Yeah, to get that much like, done that quickly... It was quickly. real fast. I know! Get all the, these people! And it all built. I'm it's tired incredible. just thinking about it, honestly. Yeah. Mary's probably tired, too, but she also decides to just get a closer, get closer to the grazing creatures who turns out their legs like kind of have a diamond formation and they move in a strange rocking motion and these grazing creatures look at her but they're not scared and mary decides not to get too close she decides instead to go towards the trees and the trees are pretty cool and she looks at more of the other cool scenery like also than the cold lava flow <laughs> again the trees are enormous their trunks are like houses and the animals surround her I love I love this line also. Yeah, it's so great, uh, especially how it's uh, constructed, right? She walked along the floor of the grove, feeling much as if she were in a cathedral. There was the same stillness, the same sense of upwardness in the structures, the same awe in herself. Beautiful. Just uh, nature's yeah. cathedral, right? Like she's walked onto this yeah. amazing land with these amazing creatures and this amazing flora and nature. And there's such a contrast here from the last two chapters of Asriel and the Magisterium. Each of them are trying to accomplish an ideal, and uh, th their fashion sense, if we've seen, is, is not very pointed, right? It's not very natural. It's very war machine. Uh, Asriel making, you know, weapons of mass destruction below his fucking purgatory hell mansion. And the Magisterium, a political penitentiary, right? Which I'm sure they have very minimalist decor in their halls it's of malice and despair and they want to control all free will but here this land is taken over by the power of nature question mark where those places are taken over by this architecture this evil architecture and the only brimstone mary sees here is the blend of the scenery right that blends into a lava flow not like the lava flows that actually exist in asriel's kingdom there, there's no eminent threat yet just beauty and nature and 
I don't often think of Mary in this facet, but I guess she is kind of the multifaceted Mary in this, right? She's the Blessed Virgin, a nun, right? That's the joke. Uh, But also, if her role is to bring whatever this whole serpent thing is to life here, we're going to see happen. Uh, Sounds like something sinish, right? Sounds like it's a sin or something. So as a sinner, they wrongfully call her Mary Magdalene because history collapsed Mary Magdalene into like eight random women in the Bible. Just so you all know, read about it. It's true. Anyway, very multifaceted in the Mary here amongst nature. I think this is just such a wondrous passage. It is. It really goes to show that spirituality can exist Mm -hmm. outside of the building. And also, just the way that this world is presented is just so Edenic. Yeah. Especially, as you were saying, in contrast to the previous two chapters and what we're seeing there. Um, And also in contrast to the first one that we started out with, right? Mm -hmm. Which is also in a place that is quite beautiful naturally, like in terms of nature, but What's happening there is pretty horrible. It ugly. Thanks, Mrs. Coulter. <laughs> In her, like, fucked up Pieta inversion. Um, well, Mary wonders why the grazing creatures don't need shade, but then decides to nap. She's like, why aren't they hanging out beneath the trees? And then she finds out herself when a crash wakes her. And a round object about a yard across rolls to her, and then more of them drop from the trees, and it just seems to be dangerous. So, <laughs> she's like, I don't, this is a mistake. All of the trees, of course, and the seed pods, of course, like, they play into the symbolism of the Tree of Knowledge, maybe even literally. And, again, like, that garden of eden vibes and here it also feels a little bit like maybe it's a nod to sir isaac newton and his pursuit of knowledge and that legend of how he discovered the law of gravity so again also science when an apple fell from a tree the legend goes that the apple hit him on the head but it seems apparently he might have just been like observing it probably uh same as how mary is not hit on the head because again it was the dangerous yeah, and to be fair, I mean, I think the seed pod doesn't fall that far from the tree in this situation. You know what I mean? Hey, uh, hey, 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 and that's why it was dangerous. <laughs> Mary watches the seed pods fall from afar, and she's interested in how they're very circular, very hard, and she notices a fragrance under the smell of dust. I love that line. It has oil, mm-hmm. uh, which is a kind of a great connection here that we started off this episode with Coulter, right, uh, making potions and making her own substances for Lyra, where now we have Mary Malone with uh, an oily substance that seems to have some sort of properties that we don't know about yet. Hmm. Mary ponders this world's evolution, and she thinks about these multiple worlds evolving and colliding, and a cloud of dust heads toward her. In fear, she runs back into a grove solid move and it's a herd of wheeled animals with horns and trunks and diamond shaped structures but they have wheels on the front and back legs she's like what how could they evolve for this and realizes as they stop they evolved for the seed pods resources baby yeah they evolved into a motorcycle oh my god that's what i want to do when i grow up (laughs) actually i wouldn't mind being a malefa when i grow up Anyways. Me either. Mulefa for life. Yeah, it turns out, yeah, these creatures have been looking for her. They are very disapproving of the fact that she tampered with the seed pods uh, based on the noises that she can interpret. She's like, interesting. 
Uh, and she speaks to them and apologizes, and she tries to signal that she is safe by holding out her hands, realizing maybe this gesture means nothing because they don't have hands. And then she realizes these creatures were as different from the grazing animals nearby as a human from a cow. And I love that this feels reminiscent of, again, we were bringing up earlier, how the difference between demons and animals are just so clear as well, mm -hmm. even though they look like they might be the same. So this is like that. Mm -hmm. And then she gestures to her towards herself and says, Mary. A creature touches her and imitates her voice, but says, Mary. Interesting. It's our good friend, Maester Mary. Oh my god. She's in the story. I wish. It's, it's actually not. <laughs> the creatures repeat her noises back to her. And of course, it imitates a British accent because it's like, <laughs> she's all saying like, what are you? And the, the creatures, the way they say it back are like, what are you? Oh my God. <laughs> I am. It's spelled, it's spelled like when she says, I'm a human, it's spelled as A-Y-A-M-A, -A -A, human. So it's like, I am a human. Oh my God. <laughs> Danny Wa. I'm doing a terrible job. I mean, Danny Wa. <laughs> Danny Wa. <laughs> That's literally this. That's this scene. It's Danny from Wa. Beep. Oh my god. Oh, we were recording that recently in this household. Oh, the other day. Fuck. That is the scene. Danny Everyone, Wa. please watch Beep. Please watch Beep. If you want to understand it's our podcast, it's actually my favorite show. Uh, it's kind of mine now, too. I'm almost on my third watch. Just give me like two more I days. I thought you said Hacks is your favorite show now, but anyways. nope, it's Veep now. The Veep and Hacks. Um, uh, it, it's it's sweet though, uh, and and so they don't repeat her the next time, right? The creatures touch a trunk to themselves, and they go Mulefa, and they imitate her again, and they're kind of laughing. So things start to relax. They feel safe, and I have to say, they're the Pokemon of this series, right? They say their own name. Mm. Wow, go Mulefa. Phil, do you like Pokemon? Yeah. I gotta know. <laughs> and and the Pokemon, they haven't they are actually speaking. It is a language that is just their own name. And we should ask Philip Pullman. You know, I mean so like cats, Pokemon. I heard and maybe this is a rumor and untrue, but like I hear that cats like they don't speak to each other out loud, you know? Oh. But they speak to us out loud. Like when my cats are yelling, huh. it's at me, not at each other. Like they don't they just sense each other, and they just, like, do things off their senses, which is, like, a wild, very free way to live. So I'm into that. Maybe that's kind of like this. Uh, oh, like, these humans are so unevolved. They really are. And after gathering some things into their sacks, one of the Mulefa trumpets, and the grazers come over, and one of the Mulefa milks a grazing creature with her trunk, and then brings her trunk to Mary's mouth. And Mary's like, no thanks, I'm a vegetarian, I'm vegan. Just kidding. <laughs> Mary flinches and she remembers Anthony Bourdain real quick and she's like alright I'll take this one for the team and she opens her mouth drinking the milk and chugging it and the creature just keeps feeding her there's this there's this line that is just so bizarre but I love it it's also very pure um, and it says the gesture was so clever and kindly that Mary impulsively put her arms around the creature's head and kissed her oh, it is kind of sweet it is sweet. She's just like, amazing. Thank you for feeding me with your trunk. Yeah. And, and that is like, that's a sign of care that yeah. the Mulefa immediately was like, well, we should feed this nice human. They seem good. We should feed this, this stupid creature. Because they're an idiot. They can't find it on their <laughs> it own. It says Danny Wah. Danny Wah. The duality of Danny Wah. Uh, 
the Mulefa are about to leave and Mary's suddenly kind of sad. She's like, oh no, until one of them lowers itself and gestures at her to get on because they're going to carry her, this strange squishy creature. And one of them takes her rucksack and puts it on their saddle and Mary climbs on the back of the creature and rides down with them. Again, we are so uninvolved. They're right. They're right to think we're just babies. Yeah. As like <sighs> and as a human adult in the real world, I don't know how I feel about some of this plot now. I'm gonna be real with you. Like some of it sure. reaches a little bit in some parts, so I'm like, all right, Pullman. And she's well meaning, right? Like Mary is well intended. Yeah. She's not being disrespectful, and it's a very beautiful and sad as we go along to see this display of their culture and nature. Uh, and and as you know, as we get forward in the story, obviously, as you can tell, war is on the way to each of these plots. Every plot we talked about today, mm-hmm. all four chapters, right? There were four different plots going on, but they're all about the culmination of the war that is coming for them. So uh, I do think it's very sad, and it's an interesting perspective to watch from. And I will say, I'm very into nature shows lately. I don't know if any mm. of you are. They're beautiful. Right. Uh, if you're looking for recommendations, David Attenborough's Life in Color on Netflix is amazing. It's beautiful. You might know him from other things as a popular media broadcaster, specifically with the old BBC here. So please enjoy it. Very pleasant. And the other one is Moving Art, also on the old Netflix. It's by filmmaker Louis Schwartzberg, and it highlights beauty lurking in oceans and forests, deserts, flowers, and it's gorgeous. It's one of my favorite things to just watch. It's like as cheesy as it sounds, it is quite literally moving art, and it takes your breath away, and there are just so many little landscapes that kind of remind me of this and some of the stuff in his dark materials and just nature and flowers and mulefa. Well, not mulefa, but, you know, elephants and shit. And uh, roses. Roses, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon. Interesting. Well, yes. Yeah, but Mary alone, Mary Malone, not so alone anymore. And so that brings us to this last, this last uh, one line from Lyra's dream sequence. She goes, because he's Will. It's so good. I Look, Ugh. this is such a great line. We don't know the precursor, but we obviously know what's going on at the very end of the chapters for the first seven chapters. We could fill in the blanks that this is something confidence-inspiring, that Lyra's feelings about Will and that he will help them and save them. This girl who has been let down by the only blood family members she has, right, over and over again. Yeah. By everyone. But William Perry is the one person that she has faith and trust in. She. This is the only religion that Lyra has and believed Yorick. in. And Yorick, yes. And, and it's just, like, so emotionally resonant out of context that this is Lyra's headspace no matter what, like, because he's Will, you don't need the other words for this. You know what it means, right? And uh, there are two other fictional moments that just, like, this kind of construction in writing, in youth fiction or in fiction in general, that romantic kind of one-liner that draws the eye into the story and makes your heart kind of go, oh my god, pitter-patter. This is so well done. It reminds me of a couple things that I'll keep Mm -hmm. vague with the least amount of spoilers. Doctor Who, Series 6, Episode 10, The Girl Who Waited, Amy Pond argues with, really long story short, Amy Pond argues with an older version of herself to do the right thing, uh, not only for her husband, but also for herself. And the line in question between them, Amy says to herself, you're asking me to defy destiny, casuality, 
the nexus of time itself for a boy. And the other Amy says, you're Amy, he's Rory, and oh, yes, I am. Uh, It's just these lines that have so much romantic weight of like, yes, the fate of the fucking world is in disarray. That is what I'm asking you to do. And here for Lyra, because he's Will, because he's Will and he will come for us. Like that is what Will will do. He will fight tooth and nail to do that. And it also reminds me of the other series that we read, uh, A Song of Ice and Fire. There's this moment with two characters, Jamie Lannister and the Maid of Tarth, where Jamie retrieves the Maid of Tarth from a very dangerous bear pit. And the villain who is guarding this bear pit says, you want her, go get her. And then George R. R. Martin, George Railroad Martin writes, so he did. Christ. Uh, it, God damn it. I do think so he did, though. Like, I think that's such, like, I've talked about it before, but it's such, like, romantically weighted, like, so he did. Pullman has constructed this as one of the briefest snippets that has so much weight, right? One sentence that has so much weight. And he's playing with some of the most basic coming-of-age friendship slash relationship parts of youth fiction, but yet it explains so much of what we know Lyra is saying. Because he's Will. Yeah. It's everything. It's it's that absolute hope and belief and that of everything she lands on that and she just knows. It's it's like a law of gravity itself, right? Yes. Coming back to that. And also, as the Paradise Lost stuff becomes much more explicit in this book, I love that this is just called out individually, right? The way, again, it's constructed with Will, of course, um, of course it's capitalized because it's a proper noun, but in Paradise Lost, the poem, the a couple of times, because... I don't know, for emphasis and because rules of spelling were just, like, different, like, not codified as much, and people were like, whatever, I can do whatever I want. Um, so Will actually gets capitalized a few times in the poem, and the first instance of when Will comes up, and this it's as a noun, not acting as a verb, is capitalized, and so those lines are, All is not lost, the unconquerable Will, in study of revenge, immortal hate, and courage never to submit or yield, that glory never shall his wrath or might extort from me. I'm like, huh. Yeah, the courage never to submit or yield especially sounds a lot like our Will. That's interesting. I, I mean, I do think that he named Will accordingly for free will, you know? I, oh, I, yeah. I do think that has to be part of it, and it, it probably is this, Paradise Lost with, I bet... Right. I, that's what I would actually like to ask him. If we have an Ask Philip Pullman sheet, we start Eliana. That's one I'd like to know. Mm, we should start. And we have I think asked it, him I things, mean, it absolutely so. is. Yeah. Not just like free will, but in general, will, the will, right? The ability will to, to power. do things. That, that impetus. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, that brings us to the end of, you know, this theoretically spoiler-free section of our podcast. Uh, and... <laughs> to the threshold the window of our discussion yes so if you have not read the novellas the books of dust either la belle sauvage or the secret commonwealth or have you not finished the amber spyglass you gotta log off just for a hot second uh we'll see you next month when we're back with the next few chapters 
but we don't want to spoil you, so come back when you've read more. But if you have read all that, or if you don't care about spoilers, this is going to be the dustiest, dirtiest section, the sinful section for you. <laughs> yeah, we also discussed the television show, but I mean... That's free game. Behind this. That's on TV. Yeah. We all watch TV. <laughs> it's not TV, it's HBO. Yeah, exactly, fuck. <laughs> Uh, well, that said, guessing that the uh, the less dusty of us have logged off, those who dust has not fallen upon them, those who maybe their demons have not settled yet. Ours haven't, but that's different. I'm a baby. I'm Bobby. We still have like 20-something chapters till our demons settle, you guys. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> so, discussion. First thing that I have to bring up, because he's Will. Something really struck me this time through, thinking about lodestone resonators. Uh, There's something interesting about how they're used. We get to see them more as we go along, so as we visit with the Galavespians in this book, we'll come back to it. But these points on a stone are unmarked. They require really, really crazy precision. It's just a small stone that Tialis tunes, right? He uses and tunes and reaches Uh the correct fluency, the right frequency, uh, and the state of mind that's used when you use this lodestone resonator is similar to uh, a state of mind required when reading the alethiometer or using the subtle knife by extension. Also, lodestone resonators can communicate across worlds. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. I just kind of feel like, is Lyra going to be able to use a lodestone resonator to talk to Will in the future? <gasps> I'm just putting it out there that this feels intentional, like an intentional craft, haha. Uh, but it, it feels intentional. This feels intentional. I, I didn't really think about them till this time through, and all that talk about adamant also kind of felt significant, and that the lodestone resonators uh, are confused. Lodestone is confused in etymology and mythology with adamant. Interesting. We have lots of adamant. I, it could be. It could be. Adamant and like, yeah, that it just like lets people reach across like cool texting and stuff. It's interesting that it hasn't come up. Mm-hmm. But I guess partially because you have to bring it through the windows, but it could it could be made. I kind of wonder, because like, I guess the way it works is right. You, you tap the thing. It's kind of like telegraphs, mm-hmm. right? But also you tap the thing and then it resonates across, right? And... I guess it's kind of like the a little like the technology that's used for the atomic bomb mm-hmm. that we'll talk about in a second for Lyra. But it also reminds me a little bit of photons. Uh, there's an experiment that was, I don't know if it was conducted in 1997, but the results of it were spread more widely in 1997, which would have been contemporary-ish mm-hmm. to the time of the publication of the Amber Spyglass. And... I don't know if this has been debunked since then, but it was like there's these like if you have a pair of photons, right, that are like intertwined with one another, when you do something to one photon, right, or like it responds to a stimulus, the other one, even though it's like a distance away, reacts the same way and does the same thing. And it's it talks about like the entangled particles right mm-hmm. like in general they're like these identical entities that share common origins and properties and that there were um experiments that did it like over distances of hundreds of yards or less but like that it could happen when like miles apart the most that um they did in this experiment was seven miles apart mm-hmm. 
shows that there's something very, very strong that like bonds these particles together, this quantum key that cannot be broken even though through those distances. And so it's interesting that I, I feel like the lodestone resonators might be drawing some inspiration from that a little, but it also reminds me of the link between a human and demon when it's not severed in the way that we see uh, Lyra and Pan are able to achieve, that Will and Kurjava. Kurjava will be able to achieve, right? But also perhaps it's a there's something really beautiful to that en- entanglement, that intertwinement that like can happen between two people, right? Even across yes. different worlds with Will and Lyra, um, too. So, it's called quantum yeah. entanglement, right? That's the term used in series. Is that series. all it's yeah. called? Is that, yeah. is that, is, quantum is that it? Quantum entanglement. Great. And I was going to mention, I'm really glad that you talked about it, because it is like a very intimate, sexy thing. Like, I'm just kind of like, you know, like it is like a quantum entanglement just sounds like your cells of your body are fucking like from long yeah. distance. Like, I don't know. I, I mean, it my, is like my husband and I were long distance, as you're well aware of, because yeah. we've been friends for a while, uh, forever, ever, 800 years, me and yeah. you go way back. And, uh, you know, we were long distance and like, that's really an emotional relationship. Yeah. You've been in long distance relationships. You know, it's an emotional thing it's hard it's hard and and, and sometimes it feels like all of your cells in your fucking body are like revolting like you just want to like you want to your cells to splatter like baruchs you know you're like take me away yeah let me whisk out of the door and fucking float there um so i really find that that study interesting that you're referencing especially like in thinking of the new way of reading the alethiometer maybe lyra could Hmm. use those skills to read a lodestone resonator i don't know Oh, so interesting. Yeah. 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 I was going to say less romantic. Um, oh, good. We, did, we didn't get this, but similar similar idea. They now have vibrators that can attune to one another um, using apps on the phone. It's, it's a similar idea. It's kind of a resonator if you think about it, a vibrator. So, Mary Malone... Uh, I ruined it. Mary Malone with the seed pods. If we can just change gears out of your lodestone resonator. Oh, there. gears. Gears, yeah, that's a Hitachi joke. And a fragrance under dust, Mary smells on the seeds. Um, A fragrance under dust. I loved that. The seed oil pods mm, smell yes. fragrant. Don't you find that so fascinating, Eliana, that they're fragrant, floral, even. It is interesting, uh, especially under the dust. Yeah, I mean, we, we learned about the lodestone resonators here, which communicate across worlds and possibly here a special oil from a seed pod. And look, okay, let's cut the shit. Until we get to the secret commonwealth, the definitive guide to rose oil, which is another oil brought up in the series or another fragrant brought up in the series. So roses grown in the Levantine trade area are a great source of attar of roses, rose oil, essence of rose, fragrant, rose water, soaps, perfumes. We see a lot of this throughout the main story, just in passing, and then the secret commonwealth, it becomes a big deal. Grown in Bulgaria, Turkish Anatolia, south of France, Morocco, Lyra has a friend in school that comes from a family whose trade is roses. The trade starts to be disrupted. We learn it's hampered by magisterium, basically, what's now the magisterium or left of it. Lyra learns some of the history after talking to a doctor from her school and then learns about, you know, Ottoman Empire, everything involved with this kind of trade going on. And then she ends up going back to Jordan 
where she's gifted a bottle of rose water, the last one, by the steward, hmm. bless him. Gladys Godwin, new director of Oakley Street, speaks with Hannah and Malcolm, boo, at a funeral and discuss its properties. A man named Brewster Napier wrote a paper on some hmm. effects of rose oil in polarized light mi- microscopy, which seemed to hold some bearings on our friend Malcolm's little light show he gets in his eyes, right, for the future. Hmm. Later we learned that... Hmm. In this book, rose oil causes visions to the people that put it in their eyeballs, which, like, on the bottle, I'm pretty sure it says not for internal use. Uh, Possibly (laughs) visions of the prophetic nature for those who apply it ocularly. So, to recap, Malcolm might shoot lasers from his eyes later. Uh, That's what I got. Is that what you got from all this? I don't know. know. Uh, Uh, It feels magical, and I think the seed pods are related, and I think we have to talk about it now, is what I'm saying. I think they're related. Yeah, yes. So so the memes that I see of people shooting lasers from their eyes, it is all foreshadowing of Malcolm doing so as well. <laughs> I mean it does it does feel related, the whole use of like floral oils or like oils in general. Mm-hmm. Um something's going on there with the lenses, you know. I just wanna like know. also no one should be putting oils in their eyes probably i you know what every single time we record i do my skincare at the beginning while we talk you know it's a it's a habit it's the only thing that gets me through yeah and i pour oil in my eye every time every time oh my god nothing good happens nothing good ever happens that sounds painful because like i've been you know i i use moisturizer right? right and uh sometimes uh i feel like maybe a little bit get gets into my eye or something Forever. and it's just it's painful that's it yeah it's over after that Yep. Well. So, again, we are we are getting into the end game here, right? Um, of the His Dark Materials series. So there's just a lot of setup in these past few chapters, you know, between all those dust references that we were discussing, and the stuff with Roger that's been interspersed since the start of the book, and you know, the Magisterium suddenly being interested in Asriel's research, mm-hmm. but also being, like, interesting that Mrs. Coulter is like that. You know, you get to start seeing, like, this build-up towards a scene later where they use, like, Mrs. Coulter's love for her daughter against her, now that they're like, oh, haha, you actually care? <laughs> and then they, you know, and using the lock of hair that Mrs. Coulter has cut from Lyra mm-hmm. later mm-hmm. on, and then, of course, using pairing that with Azriel's research to create that bomb. It's the perfect leverage. Ugh. <laughs> wow, that's that's the relationship right there. Uh, and then, you know, again, like those different goals for that same research, right, where Azriel has used it to open up new worlds and knowledge, and the Magisterium wants to use it for destruction. But you're kind of like, I mean, if they both believe, like, this is what it is, there, there's a question being posed there, morally somewhere um and then also again especially when you see how mary malone interacts with the malefa more of like the sort of desire to come from a place of understanding right Mm -hmm. not from a place to uh subjugate or exert power and of course we also get that stuff about metatron and start learning more about our final boss so and yeah, that we get the setup of the world of the Malefa, where the all the shit's gonna go down, right? They're mm-hmm. talking about like, oh, if only you were there in the Garden of Eden. You go next straight to the world of the Malefa, where I mean, the fall happens. That's yeah. supposed to be the Garden of Eden esque area. So yeah, he goes there. They're sending him there, and uh, I think just cohesively speaking, like 
all four of these chapters just have such strong themes that bind them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the yeah. construction of these four chapters is just perfect. How it flows from yeah. Coulter, who her religion right now is clutching Lyra close to her in this cave in the Himalayas, and Azriel, whose religion is building these armies and these war machines to face the authority and then you move to the magisterium who is scared and running and clutching things to their side and planning to murder a little girl because they have no other control or power that's where we are boys really mm-hmm. this is where we are anyways yep. and then ending this is where we are <laughs> with the garden ending with mary in the most peaceful place of them all for now until until but things are good now things are good now Gosh, well, except like for her, for her, yeah, not for, not everyone, for everyone else. else for everyone else, clearly shit's chaotic as fuck. <laughs> well, that was. I think that was a lot to discuss. Those were four chapters, but at the same time, some of them they're short and sweet, but a lot happens. Yeah, Mary's chapter for sure was beautifully done too. Short, sweet, and got the point across, but it showed some great imagery and some great Bible references, and I like that. Yeah. So we had to do a bit of shuffling around, as you all know, these past few weeks. So lucky for many of you, even though we do not have another Historic Materials Patreon episode this month, we do end up having two Historic Materials episodes in August. This one and one at the end of the month. Yeah, we'll be back with you at the end of the month, last week of the month, back to our normal schedule. So we'll get back in the groove of things. Next week, we will go back to A Song of Ice and Fire for just a couple weeks before returning, giving you a Historic Materials august episode and uh we'll go from there we'll be back then the following month that last friday thanks so much for listening in make sure you check us out online and subscribe to us uh over on social media if you want to give us a tweet or a dm let us know how you're feeling about the episodes girls gone canon c-a-n-o-n or if you want to send us an email and let us know what you're thinking about in the amber spyglass or if it's discussion worthy we will definitely save it for there our email is girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes. And of course, keep up with us with whenever these episodes come out. You can find us on Podbean, where this is all hosted, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Acast, Stitcher. I, I, I always say Overcast. I'm still not sure if that's real or if I'm making it up. But we will be in one more place next week, Monday, August 9th, streaming with our good friend Thomas. As part of TMC. Yes, the TMC so, podcast. Can't wait for that. We'll be talking about Dazed and Confused. Uh, check out the Teacock Network, the uh, the TMC podcast. We will put a link in the description for you. As always, thanks so much for listening. I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. See you later this month. Goodbye. <laughs>